the latest on You Make the Card and possible unrestrictions on episode 23 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 23 of So Many Insane Plays, in which we debate possible restrictions and unrestrictions in vintage. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. By way of announcements for this episode, Steve, I think you have some new content that recently came out. Um, yeah, I just uh, published a free Legacy Primer on Hermit, uh, Rogue Hermit, which is the uh, the deck that uses the two new Gatecrash Hermits. And my Legacy deck is quite interesting. It uses all of the one card, one mana accelerants like Chancellor of the Tangle, the Spirit Guides, Lotus Petal, Chrome Mox. But the real breakthrough for me was figuring out how to interface Living Wish in the deck, which makes it very consistent and much stronger without relying on Lion's Eye Diamond. And I sort of figured that out. It's a free article on Eternal Central, so check it out. Also, go ahead and check out my Burning Tendrils Bakerville first place tournament report, brand new. My second first place finished there in the last couple months. And the latest History of Vintage series article, 1998, has been published. So six of those articles have been published, six chapters. It's turned out phenomenal. People seem to have a real nostalgia for the uh, old school magic right now, Kevin. Becoming a, There's even a format called Old School Magic that plays like 1994 rules. And some people are so uh, hardcore, you can't actually play with revised cards. They require you to play with uh, unlimited, beta, alpha, uh, etc. Wow. I love it. A format after my own heart. Mm-hmm. I also, Let's also go ahead. No, go, you go ahead. I also love the discovery of Chancellor of the Tangle in that legacy deck. I think that is awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's really powerful. And it's even better it's even good after turn one because there's so many ways you can store the mana with Chancellor. So Living Wish, for example, you can use Chancellor of the Tangle on a spirit guide or something to be to find like a city of traitors or a cavern of souls. So in a sense, there are a lot of ways that you can turn Chancel of the Tangle, even if you can't go off on turn one, into a, a viable plan of action. And its interaction with Chrome Mox means you can get double benefit on the first turn with it. That's, that's the best play. So if you generate a mana with it and then you imprint it on Chrome Mox, you can Living Wish immediately. And that, it's, it's bonkers. It's like a two-for-one. That's awesome. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the the vintage version of that deck probably needs Living Wish. You get so many tools. In in, in the Legacy version, you get Cavern of Souls, Swamp, like an Eberron Stronghold or or a Peat Bog, and uh, City of Traders, things like that. But in the vintage, in Cavern of Souls, of course, in the vintage version, you get Talarian Academy, Bizarre Baghdad, Mishra's Workshop, Cavern of Souls. I mean, just like a, a cornucopia of broken, restricted lands in, in great lands uh, that were, that are really potentially great. It allows you for a lot more resilience in vintage too you can keep non-turn one hands absolutely in more same context thing, same thing is true in the in the legacy version i mean you if you want to it's fine to go off and turn two if you have a cavern of souls that they can't counter your then you win Let's also talk a little bit about You Make the Card. Now, we dedicated a ton of time to that in our prior episode, obviously. And as of this recording date, Black has won the color vote 
And now we're voting on whether or not we're going to make an aura or a non-aura enchantment. And I think it's pretty clear a lot of people expect the aura to not even come close in the voting process. But we've already been surprised by a couple of the other votes. Steve, what's your expectation? Oh, yeah. Global enchantment is going to blow aura away. It's going to be extremely lopsided. I'm definitely voting for global enchantment. And I I tend to agree with you. I think that this one's not going to be close. I know Ethan alluded to that even in his most recent article calling for the vote. I thought that was pretty funny. He said, this might be a foregone conclusion, but we'll vote on it anyway. Yes. Now, I think it's awesome. We can save this for a future episode, obviously, but the notion of black enchantments in vintage, there are still plenty of really potent, really historically awesome black enchantments for vintage. We we may have unfairly dismissed enchantment in our last podcast, and and I think the reason for that is because we didn't really seriously consider Leyline as a particular card type. Leyline, being a free spell, opens up so much design potential for vintage. I mean, half the Leylines, over half the Leylines have seen play in vintage top eights or are vintage playable. So, I mean, and, and again, there's so many good enchantments. The big ones that I've been looking at and talking with you about are basically enchantments from Legends. I mean, Legends is like the gold mine for black enchantments. You get the Abyss, you get Chains of Mephistopheles, you get All Hallows Eve, you get Nether Void, and there's just so many good black enchantments in that set. How awesome would it be, though? How awesome would it be to have Leyline of the Lich? Oh, man. Now, that's a blast from the past. It's been a long time since Lich was played in any Eternal format. That's true, but Lich is a card that I think would be particularly interesting as a Leyline. Very dangerous, but potentially quite useful. I would, I, I think that the that Leyline of, of a lot of the older card variants is... Oh, I forgot to mention, by the way, Greed was in Legends as well, which was the precursor to Necropotence. Yeah, we all saw how well that went. Greed is definitely more balanced, that's for sure. You could print that on a ley line and it wouldn't be quite so bad. <laughs> yeah, it might not be good at all, though. <laughs> Kevin, you used to go by the handle Chains. When I first met you, that was your like uh, signature. How would you word uh, a ley line Chains of Mephistopheles? Well, I've given the matter some thought already because I think that the current wording on Chains of Mephistopheles is actually It's loyal to the original intent of the card, of course, but I think you can make a much simpler version of that wording that removes a little bit of the complexity and removes a a little bit of the power. But at the same time, all you have to do is to say whenever an effect would cause a player to draw a card, they discard Uh a card and draw instead. That's awesome. That's brilliant. You can compress it down to one sentence. And careful rules uh, understanders will note that that wording excludes your draw for the turn because your draw for the turn is not an effect. But it also means that if you have no cards in hand, you don't get impacted by the whole drawback of having to mill instead of draw. And I think that's a fine balancing point. I mean, the odds of you having no cards in hand is already means that the deck playing Chains has accomplished its goal. Chains was very rarely a lock piece, per se, and more so just a disruptor. And I think that that wording... How good would that card be in Legacy against all the Ponder Brainstorm nonsense? I think it would be awesome. And and as a ley line, though, as you've said, as a ley line, because Chains is highly effective at fighting those effects, those brainstorm ponder effects, but it costs two, and those cards all cost yes. one. You can't actually yes. fight those cards effectively with a change yes. of Mephistopheles, despite how good the effect is. So as a ley line, it gets around that limitation. We could see our first non-four mana ley line. You could 
definitely print Chains of Mephistopheles as a ley line. The, the slightly less powerful version I stated, you could make it, say, three mana and have the ley line effect. And then it would definitely come into the conversation as a way to fight all the efficient cantrips that are all over Legacy and Vintage. I love it, Kevin. I'm gonna, I think we should submit that card. I think that's going to be my submission when it comes to mechanics, assuming Global Enchantment wins. Sounds great. But we'll, we should circle back and, and talk more about this, this subject in the near future. We definitely will. And we'll talk lots more as soon as Global and Black Enchantment is declared the winner. <laughs> Yeah. Which both and many people expect to be the case. Great job, Kevin. I threw down the gauntlet for you. I gave you the challenge. I knew you'd rise to the challenge. So I love your layline. Thank you. Thank you. Let's move on then and talk more about the restricted list. This is a conversation we've had a long time coming. We're looking forward to it. Next, we want to talk about the banned and restricted list. Not so much the banned list, but the restricted list. (laughs) (laughs) The banned list's not quite so interesting a topic. But Steve, we've monitored the comings and goings from the restricted list for several years now. Most recent, yeah, the most recent being Burning Wish, and we've been doing this since long before we were podcasting, of course. And one of the interesting topics that comes up every once in a while, because there are no changes to the vintage list, is what could be done or should be done. There are still a number of candidates, thanks to the ebb and flow of the metagame, that could be unrestricted, that would have varying levels of impact. That's what we want to debate. And this is a topic that we've long had on the docket and just never got around to. Mm-hmm. And we think it's a very interesting topic, which is which cards, if any, should be restricted and which cards, if any, should be unrestricted. So we'll start with the unrestricted discussion. Um, I just want to say at the beginning that I am of the view right now that there is not a single card I would I'm pretty sure there's not a card I would unrestrict. I really like the the vintage. This is the first time in the entire almost 20 years I've been playing this game. I quit in 96 and got back in in 2000. I started in 1993. And during that entire time, this is the first time that I pretty much agree with every single card on the list. (laughs) So I'm not in favor of unrestricting anything. So I think this will make a very interesting discussion between me and Kevin. I agree. Because you're even... Because I don't take you're quite even, exactly that approach. You're even more, I don't know what you want to put it, libertarian than I am about the banned and restricted list. I definitely am. <laughs> um, and the last the last three years, they've unrestricted a card in September. Last year, they unrestricted Burning Wish. The year before, Factor Fiction. And the year before that, in September, they unrestricted two cards, Frantic Search and Gush. When I got back into Vintage in 2000, the Vintage... Type, the type one restricted list was bloated. It was hugely bloated because in 1999, there were three waves of restrictions. And the last one, they restricted like 18 cards, half of which were probably unnecessary. But, um, and, and so it led to a restricted list that was basically, there were too many cards on there and a lot of cards probably didn't have to be on there. So it took a long time to get most of those cards off of it. So where should we start? Let's let's pick a card and, and debate whether it should be unrestricted or not, and we'll make the case one way or the other. Why don't we start? Actually, I asked you, but let me start with a card that I think it's a lot, a lot of discussion, and it's Thirst for Knowledge. Good example. Very good example. I think, in my opinion, this card really typifies the the pivot of cards that should never come off compared to cards that are least open for discussion. I think this card is one of the pivot points on that discussion because it's pretty clear based on lots of documented evidence, and you've written on this topic at length, that this card had a very dominant impact on the format in its day. The the most dominant impact, at least in the modern era. Yes. It's, It's pretty clear your criteria for 
the inclusion or exclusion from the restricted list in the past has has bared quite heavily on that dominance factor, but not everyone shares that view, and that's one of the things I think is important when discussing thirst. So let's let's discuss those two those criteria. I mean, traditionally, the number. I mean, the purpose of the restricted list, by and large, is to create a diverse format, and we call it meaningful choice in terms of deck choice, right? So that people have multiple deck choices. If you have a dominant deck or a deck that's too good, then that limits choice. So you restrict a card that, from a dominant deck. That's clear, universally accepted criteria for restriction. Restricting a card from a dominant deck, basically a monopoly deck in the format, the best deck. And there is no no card in the history of the format that exemplifies that better than Thirst. Thirst had the highest percentage of top eights of any card measured in, in the entire format's history. Because partly because we only have data for the last since basically 2001. Gush decks never reached the level of statistical dominance that Thirst decks did. So well, before I get into the detail on Thirst, let's just start. The first criteria is metagame dominance. The second criteria is basically, seems to be, cards that sort of win the game on turn one. So Flash and um, and Trinisphere are the two paradigmatic examples of that, right? Yep, and also, functionally speaking, a lot of the other draw seven type bombs like Bargain and Necro and Mind's Desire also. I think yeah, those Desire. all can be grouped together in that category. Cards that end well, the game. Hard. It's hard to say because Mind's Desire was never actually legal as a four of in the format. It's definitely not it there for that reason. But it wasn't necessarily a turn one deck. So, But you know. I still would group those together in that effect. Okay. Well, I'm not comfortable doing that, but go for it. (laughs) But isn't the spirit of that restriction, using Flash as an example, the spirit of that restriction is a lack of choice in gameplay. It's a lack of interactivity. Yeah. And so regardless of whether or not the card Flash is the thing ending the game or Yawgmoth's Bargain for 18 is the thing ending the game, the, the choice is the it's correlated to speed. No, no well, I think I I don't think that the, the difference is I don't think that Yawgmoth's bargain. I don't think that Desire or Turn One plays even at the time they were restricted. But the turn bargain. the turn itself is not as material as how much occurs in such a game. And I I I I don't because I think I think that okay, well, it depends on how you understand the restriction of Flash. I think that the, both the restrictions of of Trinisphere and Flash were I I think, but I could be wrong. Root People didn't even get one turn to play. The Flash is an easy turn one play that can just win the game if you've got a Protean Hulk and two in a Mox in your hand. Right. And I think so I if think you were to try and encapsulate the reason why Yawgmoth's Bargain is restricted, you would end up using a lot of the same language. Because the next question is obviously, well, why is a turn one win bad? Well, it's because it removes choices and limits deck, blah, 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 blah. Well, All the same the criteria are going to end up being used for Yawgmoth's Bargain as well. Well, well, the thing is, I'm, you know, I, what I think what I'm trying to get at is there are criteria for restriction. Everyone agrees that restricting a card out of a dominant deck is a, a legitimate, valid, justifiable restriction, criteria for restriction. But once you get beyond that, you immediately enter the realm of contested logic. <laughs> and I think this is this is illustrates that point. You and I are perfectly I was listening to uh, Nat Moe's um, the Team Serious podcast mm-hmm. and their most recent guest was saying how he doesn't like decks that went on turn one. And I was thinking to myself, you know, that guy's a pansy. Come on, <laughs> what's wrong with turn one decks? You know, what you and I are perfectly comfortable with decks that went on turn one. But many magic players are not. And the reason we're comfortable with it is because we understand that that it's not about when you win, it's about the ability to win matches. 
that if one game is won on turn one, that might be necessary for that deck to actually compete in tournaments over time and perform. And so you can actually have a deck that wins on turn one some number percentage of the time, but it's good for the format because it increases metagame diversity. So these, one of the things that I've pointed out over and over again is that you can have criteria for restriction that are intention. So for example, eliminating, you could actually increase the diversity of the metagame by unrestricting flash, but that would be unacceptable to some players because you would have a deck that, I don't know, could win on turn one, you know, 15% of the time, right? Mm, In the Rogue Hermit deck, the Rogue Hermit deck is an example of something like that. It might not be very good in tournaments, that remains to be seen, but it does, it, it has a non-trivial turn one win percentage. Zvi Mauschwitz in his very famous Urza Saga set review, uh, it, which is a great read, and part nine is all on, on type one. And he says if type one is to survive as a format after this new set Urza Saga, multiple restrictions are going to have to happen. And he defines as a viable format decks, uh, a format in which each player gets four turns. <laughs> wow. Now that's the... Yeah, I mean, to us, that sounds crazy. Brian, Brian DeMarge is like that school. Yeah. You know, and, and, and this gets really complex quickly. And, you know, and, and the issue is that well, I'd say there's at least two key elements here. <laughs> one is that, one is that, you know, for example, in modern, Wizards has been explicit that they want to make sure games last four turns per player. Right. Yet four turns per player is like the average in vintage. I think vintage games go about 4.5 turns per, per player on average. That's average. Mm-hmm. Which means there are turn three, turn two games. Yeah. The other thing that's difficult to tease out is that in a format like Vintage, where there's so much acceleration, but there's compact decision-making, saying you want each player to get four turns creates a structural bias in ban and restriction list policy towards control decks, towards grindy decks. Yeah. That is necessarily, that's not a neutral thing. It, it, it's very easy to say, well, I want each player to get four turns, and that doesn't, that doesn't become, that's not a neutral claim that becomes interpreted, if not in intent, at least in effect, as punishing non-control decks. And we've touched on before how the metric of a turn is not the same across formats. So to have a standard that lays out a specific number such as that is obviously inexact. Yeah, it's, it's, it's English to metric. It's, if not worse. I mean, exactly. The the turn metric is, is, is a very gross measure at best. So granting, granted that the criteria for restriction are in some way ambiguous, uncertain, ever shifting, although there is at least one criteria that we can universally agree upon. Let's, let's delve into this. We've touched on thirst. We were talking about thirst. I would simply posit that there were a lot of players who didn't agree with the thirst restriction despite its overwhelming majority of presence because yes. they also happen to enjoy that bias toward yes. control decks that you cited. Yes. Whereas the yes. converse, Trinisphere, for example, which had no format dominance yes. and was restricted just on the basis of people don't like this mostly. Yes, yes, that's right. The other thing about thirst, so we can, I'd like to maybe do the pros and cons of unrestricting it. Sure. The, the argument, I think the strongest argument against uh, for unrestricting it is that look, it was restricted in 2000 and I think nine, let me 2009, and that was now three and a half years ago, almost four years ago. Enough time has elapsed that we can, you can, it's a safe unrestrict, and people point to cards like Factor Fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is a safe trick to blah blah blah. I do not think that that argument is good, and I think that argument is poor for at least two reasons. First, is that the thirst for knowledge was legal for years and fine for years until I helped get Time Vault restored. I think Time Vault decks with thirst for knowledge are just too broken, and I don't think there's anything structural in that that's changed. I think thirst for knowledge decks. My number one argument against thirst being unrestricted is this: Does anyone doubt that if thirst were unrestricted, it would become the the, the 
de facto best blue draw engine? I don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it would become the preference of choice. Whereas right now you have diversity of blue engine. You have Jace, you have Gush, you can use, you know, Standstill, Dark Confidant, mm -hmm. all kinds of now, not only that, but you would just put Thirst in with the best ones. So you'd probably have Dark Confidant Thirst decks, and they would be, I think, probably too good. And I think the burden, um, regardless of how you distribute the burden of proof or whatever, I don't think enough time has elapsed. Factor Fiction was unrestricted. If, if we're using the time argument, then let's unrestrict Gifts, because Gifts was un was restricted, let's see, four years <laughs> or um uh, two years before thirst mm -hmm. and i and i think um you know fact was unrestricted 10 years ago in fact was re restricted in the dark ages of the format when none of these draw engines existed um oh. the other thing is that it's arguable that gifts is far far more innocuous in the sense that it's forecasting first against shops and there are far more hosers for it now i mean consider gifts for not gifts given might be broken with Snapcaster Mage, but how good is Wrath Digger's Cage against Gifts? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there are cards that just Gifts is, I mean, could be much more easily hosed given the incredible number of graveyard hate printings that we've seen since in cards like Wrath Digger's Cage, which make Gifts pretty much ineffectual. I would agree. I think that it's, I'm of the opinion that you could unrestrict Gifts before Thirst. I, I mean, I, I just think that a, I think a lot of what's animating the desire for thirst is they just want thirst back. And I think there's look, Kevin, we've been playing vintage together for over 10 years. And how many times have you seen me and actually endorse a restriction or been happy that something's restricted? Yeah, almost never. When, when Trinosphere was restricted, I was unhappy. When Gifts was restricted, I was unhappy. When Gush and company were restricted both times, I was unhappy. Although I understood the first time, you know, because we were dominating with doing a lot of really good with Gifts. When, when the long parts were restricted, I was unhappy because I felt like, look, this card Chalice has just been printed. Right. The only card I've ever really felt really comfortable with the restriction of was Thirst. And I, I mean, I think that there's not, that it's a very, very high risk, low reward card to unrestrict. The, 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 right now you have such an amazing format, a diversity of blue options. Why risk that? And not only that, here's another argument I'll throw out there. Thirst for Knowledge emphasizes the worst aspects of the format. It emphasizes the Tinker Blightsteel thing and the Time Vault thing and the Yogg Moss Will thing. Mm -hmm. People the things that people don't like. People want to play grindy decks like Bomberman or Landstill. You think Thirst for Knowledge facilitates those? <laughs> no, I agree with you. I think that while people may like the kind of deck that Thirst is, I think that it would definitely lead to a contraction in the viable deck construction options of the format, and I wouldn't like that. I like casting a Thirst for Knowledge every now and then, and I like yeah. playing the decks that were in when they were legal. But I don't miss it. So there's a lot of player preference baked into this whole discussion. And I think some people can take a, an objective approach to the discussion and say, well, Steve, we don't believe that thirst would be 40% dominant the way it was when it was restricted. 45%, okay. almost 50. And yeah. if that's true, then the whole argument just boils down to a lot of uncertainty. What yes. what percentage dominant would it be? If it's 30, is that okay? I, I don't think so. Right. You know, if it's 25, yeah. are we getting into the realm of okayness? It's that yeah. area where no one can actually predict a percentage like that. People just say intuitively, probably less than 40 or 45, so it's okay. And not everyone's willing to take that chance. I mean, just to give people a sense of it, it the, the last Gush era, where Gush was like seemingly everywhere and won the Vintage Champs, was 25% of top eights. 
25%. That's it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's when the gush got five cards restricted. <laughs> okay? Thirst for knowledge decks were almost 50% of top eights. 45%. That is that's almost double. I mean that's 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 the most do- statistically dominant thing we've ever seen in a format that resists that sort of uniformity and heterog- and and homogeneity. You know, on the flip the side, form- on the flip side, though, thirst is not one of those cards that ends the game. It's not one of those ma- cards that you ramp up to and say, "Oh, he got thirst, so he won." Games continue after thirst is cast. Neither is gush. Well, <laughs> gush is less so, though. Gush is one of those cards where you play it on turn two, and then you play it again on turn two, and then you play it a third time on turn two, and then you play it three more times out of your graveyard, and it did end the game. Right. Gush is a lot more like those game-ending cards than Thirst ever will be. Thirst has never been part of a game-ending combo, you know, tr- uh, uh, Time Vault notwithstanding. Yeah. So I would say that the problem with this issue in the whole is that it goes in opposite directions. If you want the game to be grindy, Thirst is part of games like that. I don't. I don't really agree with that. I think Thirst is the kind of card where I played against. You know, look, we both played in the Thirst era, which was largely the Star City Games Power Nine era. Right. Thirst right. is the kind of card where Rich Shea goes turn one, Mox Mox Land Thirst. <laughs> you know, I remember a game where he went Mox Mox Land Thirst Lotus. <laughs> <laughs> look, that's that's aberrant though. That's that's uh, I know, below I know. the median. He probably discarded like a mind slaver or something, and then you know it's like, and then play goblin welder. I just but those games, but that's what I'm getting at though is while it's possible to construct a game ending scenario with thirst, that's not the norm. Even turn one thirst is not a game ending scenario. But it's not grindy like bomberman or lance. It's much more grindy like gosh. Yeah, my point is that it does not lead to these degenerate scenarios like flash, like trinisphere, yeah. like necropotence. It doesn't. It's not like yeah. in the game the turn after you cast thirst. So so in that sense, it has a lot of appeal from people who say, well, I don't care if it's 40% of the metagame, I can still play in that metagame. We both agree that Thirst should not be unrestricted. So we let's invite our listeners mm-hmm. to give us other arguments for unrestricting, and we'll discuss it. And that's why I say that I feel like this card really is a fulcrum on which this discussion of the restricted list bends. Because many other cards you could talk about restriction, and they would create this newness in the format. They would create something that it just doesn't exist today. Thirst doesn't create newness in the format. It just creates, it just consolidates some existing things. We're going to talk about cards like Windfall in a minute, but one of the differences between Thirst and Windfall is the way in which Thirst directly interacts with so many features of the modern control deck. Sure. Namely, Tinker, Time Vault, and Yawgmoth's Will. You know, and those are the most problematic elements of the format. Those are the cards that if you, if you created a vintage ban list based on power, those three cards would be the top candidates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and that, Thirst draws those in the very center of the format. Right now, we have a format where Time Vault, Tinker, and Yawgmoth's Will are not uniformly in control decks. Thirst, I think, would change that situation very quickly. That's a good point. Consolidation is not to be celebrated. So let's, let's turn to Flash, which I think is an, is an interesting point that illustrates some of the other uh, aspects of this discussion. What do you think of Flash? I think that there is a lot more hate for it in this day and age. It would not be as strong as it was. Which, which hate cards in particular do you have in mind? I'm thinking, well, almost all the dredge hate, for example. But Leyline of the Void existed at the time. It was a key part of the anti, you know. Yes, but you know. was it? did it exist in conjunction with the 
three or four other anti-dredge cards that are in everybody's sideboard now. That's the real issue. People didn't have flash boards in the way that they have dredge boards today. That is to say, it wasn't ubiquitous. It didn't. I mean, it didn't even last long enough to become ubiquity. I don't know. I don't think that's true. I think that I remember playing Leyline of the Voids and stuff in my sideboard for both dredge and flash. That you were hitting both at the same well, time. Well, and now we have even better cards though. What was the card you had after Leyline of the Void though? Is my point. Jailer. Leyline of Singularity was also included for flash. See, that's the point. Is Leyline of Singularity is pretty bad. Let's be clear. Though, let me ask: Do you think do you think Flash could be unrestricted or should be? It could be, yes. And I have the same answer for a number of these cards. As long as you're comfortable for with the thing that it creates, it could be. Would you? Would I? No. Yeah. No, I See, would not be- the- because I don't believe it adds things we need to the format. Flash is the one card that I'm comfortable with unrestricted. I think it's the one card on the on the restricted list that I'm. I think I'm. I'm completely. I'm pretty close to completely comfortable with. That's it, really interesting to me because I think there are plenty of other cards that are less dangerous and add more interesting things and don't just create specters of problems. We'll get to that, but <laughs> those other parts. But I'll explain why I think Flash is okay. Okay. First, Flash was legal when you could play four Brainstorm, right. four Merchant Scroll, and four Ponder. Yes, the deck would be not nearly as consistent as it was then. Not even remotely. Yep. I mean, you used to be able to go Brainstorm on turn one, Merchant Scroll on turn two, and then win. You know, you find the Merchant Scroll finds the Flash, Brainstorm finds you the Protean Hulk, you're good to go. With all those cards restricted, Flash is going to be incredibly inconsistent. Right. I just I just don't know if it's and it's going to be at least slow enough that it's going to be a mean a, a, you know a chore to assemble all that stuff. The other thing is there's more hate for Flash than ever before. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, you can play Spell Snare to fight Flash now. You can play cards like that, cards of that nature um, that I think would be very good at combating Flash. The deck would look dramatically different on paper. It would play dramatically differently than it did, and I think it would be acceptable. I, I do not. It wouldn't be dominant. It would just be another thing. That's the other thing is Flash was never more than 10% of the Type 1 metagame. It succumbed to the Trinisphere restriction. Yeah. I mean, I encourage anyone who is skeptical of Flash to go look at the data in my article archive, and you'll see Flash's trend line. Yeah. It was never more than 10% of top eights. I, I don't think, you know, Steve, you're, you're arguing a point that I don't think anyone is actually in favor of, which is I don't think anyone believes, really, that the mass restriction that came about because of Flash was actually warranted. I don't think anyone in the in the community today would actually say that that was the right thing to do. The question is, then, if it wasn't warranted, is it okay to restrict it? That's that? what I'm getting I, at, is how do you roll it back though what was the right thing to do and that time is lost so now you just have to choose what you want today to look like first of all i have this basic rule that you never restrict more than one card at a time mm-hmm. i think that you know there may be exceptions to that i mean maybe when urza saga came out when urza saga was first released they restricted three cards they restricted academy they restricted windfall stroke was the logical restriction because brain geyser was on the restricted list and stroke was just as good windfall was a, like a draw seven so that's an example where i can maybe make an exception but in general for cards that aren't brand new printings, I very rarely like restricting more than one card because I think you can hit most of the problem with one card. You wait and see if you have, and then you go to the next card. Whereas it's worse, in my opinion, try and, you know, make sure you've got 99% of the problem cleaned out. You know, it's not like a cavity. You know, (laughs) like when you try and clean out a a cavity, you don't clean out 75% of it and then go back three months later. You get it all out. Whereas (laughs) here is the opposite. You don't want to sweep broader than necessary. You want to be as targeted as possible. And so (laughs) I am... 
if I had been in charge of the band restricted list, I would have restricted just Merchant Scroll, waited, and then probably restricted Brainstorm. And that's probably it at the time. But at this point, in terms of you can't unwind the clock, mm-hmm. um, I think unrestricting Gush was absolutely correct. Surprising, but correct. I think Flash is the next card you can unrestrict from those five cards. Flash is the safest of the five, of the, of the four remaining restricted cards. Flash, I think, has no chance of, do- no chance of dominating the format. Mm-hmm. Not going to be consistent turn one. Certainly not any worse than Rogue Hermit. I, I think it will create a, an archetype that some people will want to play. It's an it's a relatively inexpensive archetype. That's good for vintage. And the only problem with it is that it reinforces the idea that people can win on turn one. But I don't think it's going to be a high enough turn one win percentage to matter. You have to have a Mox, a Land, Flash, and the Protean Hulk in your opening hand and or Summoner's Pack. Now, I don't like the idea of you know being able to play with a bunch of Pact of Negation, but I think there's plenty of answers to this. I mean, who does doesn't have four ley line of the void in their sideboard. <laughs> right. I think it is a textbook example of that, which I was referring to before. You could unrestrict it. It would not break the metagame. It's just a matter of are you comfortable with what it would create. I don't like what it adds to the metagame in the, at the which current is moment, which is another coin flippy style control slash combo deck. I don't like the notion that when I'm playing, when I'm choosing my deck construction, now I've got to put more cards in my sideboard that say, well, this card can go, this deck can go off on turn one. It's not consistent, but I still have to guard but, against it. First principle about promoting diversity, wouldn't Flash create a new arc, another archetype? That's the thing is I don't particularly view it as a new archetype. Yes, it has 20 different cards than the next deck, but you're still going to yeah. end up preparing for it in a very similar way. I suppose that's a fair any. Uh, you know, here's here's a interesting here's an interesting litmus test. Any deck that causes me to want to play Leyline of Sanctity, I think, is a bad thing. <laughs> that's that's really it. And I don't, I don't lump Leyline of Void in with that same thing. Leyline of the Void is the sort of thing where if you have to play around the Leyline of the Void, then you've got removal and you've got this, and usually you're not going to go off the turn you get rid of the Leyline of the Void, that kind of thing. Leyline of Sanctity only comes in against decks that are just waiting to find that chain of vapor. Bounce your Leyline, go off. You know, I just... Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's, not, that's right. I mean, the, 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 the typical kill was either the... There was the two two flash kills. The, I think the most popular one at one point was the... Um, the Revel Arc one saved one card, but the Sliver kill was the more popular one, yeah. right? Well, uh, I was in preference to the Revel Arc one myself, but whatever. It's That's splitting hairs. The point is that... Travel Arc one though is stopped by Leyline the Void, lots of dredge hate yeah. in Leyline Sanctity, right? Yes. So But you know what? Also we haven't looked at what that deck becomes since all the creatures that are printed. I haven't thought about this issue, but it could be that there's a Laboratory Maniac version of that kill now. That's true. Anyway, my, my point is that I think that the presence of Leyline of Sanctity in a metagame to stop decks like that is a litmus test. I don't like how coin flippy it becomes. That's a fair point. I mean, I was looking at it largely from a metagame diversity standpoint, and my view is the restriction of Brainstorm, Ponder, and, and Merchant Scroll make that deck so much less consistent that it should be fair in terms of yeah. not not being dominant and being pretty easy to, to manage and tame, and yet still being at least marginally good enough to be attractive to some players. I think those assessments are fair. My opinion is pretty clearly and, and admittedly one of personal bias. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, that's, I'm telling you my honest opinion. Yes, you could unrestrict that card. If that's your only criteria for my opinion, then that is my opinion. You could unrestrict it. I'm, I'm surprised, given your libertarian nature of 
<laughs> well, that's why I'm trying to give an honest answer here. I believe you can unrestrict it is my answer, and I don't like what it produces. Okay. Interesting. But but everyone has their own opinion. I mean, that's just a mirror image, basically, of the thirst response, which is some people think you could unrestrict it, and they do like what it produces. So yep. that's well. Let's let's move on to the next card then. So we we both agree we should not unrestrict thirst, and you're of the I'm of the view that flash is probably a safe unrestrict, and you're not. Okay. I I, I, I don't want to pigeonhole my answer. I believe flash is a safe unrestrict using the criteria that you're describing. I just don't like what it does. Okay. See, it's kind of like the opposite of how I feel about balance. I also think balance is a safe unrestrict, and I do like what it does. <laughs> and a lot of people, I think, would feel the opposite. Let's pivot to balance then. Yeah, sure. I think it's pretty clear that balance would create some new, I don't want to go so far as to say archetypes, but some new variations on existing archetype. Because like Flash, it doesn't just go into an existing deck. There's no deck right now that would obviously just add four balances. Five color stacks. That's not a deck right now. <laughs> Yes, that's where balance goes, but that five-color stacks hasn't been a thing for a while. It might bring five-color stacks back. It I mean, might. It's, it's, yeah, but the thing about that is that that deck is inherently a gambit. That deck, the reason it yeah. went away is because it's very risky to try and play, especially against mono-brown workshop decks. If you think balance is going to swing the, the mono-brown matchup in your favor when you're five-color stacks, I think you've got another thing coming. Really? Yeah, I don't think that balance makes five-color workshops better than mono-brown workshop. Balance was restricted, for our listeners, balance was restricted in early 1995. It was restricted along with Fork, and it was restricted because of the Adam Masonette balance deck, which was basically a deck that played a bunch of cheap artifacts like Library of Lang, um, the rack, and then use Bizarre Baghdad to empty its hand and cast balance. Now, that deck is obviously laughable today in the sense that it wouldn't be any good in, in contemporary vintage. Mm-hmm. The question is, and has been for some time, I mean, balance is, strikes a lot of people, especially older players, is absurd to even talk about because people used to think it was so broken. Right. But that was back in an era when creatures were the way you won games, even with control decks. Right. So what are the merits and, and demerits of unrestricting balance? I think the merits are one of diversity. I think you would allow for some builds of decks that don't exist today. Now, it's it's minor points of diversity, mind you, because I really am just talking about different derivations of blue decks. Yep. But I think they are meaningful variations to, than what we have today. And I think the the risk is that the risk is not so much that those decks would be dominant, but that the balance strategy runs the risk of being too good and narrowing the metagame by pushing creatures out too much. The last, that's, I think that's the problem yes. with it, is that balance, I agree with you, would probably be, this, so this gets to the whole, again, criteria for restriction, right? Mm-hmm. From a pure metagame diversity standpoint, balance is probably okay. In the last time balance, balance was in a top vintage championship winning deck list was Roland Chang's five color stacks. I mean, right. balance is not exactly a hot performer, even as restricted. I don't think that unrestricted, it would really be a dominant deck. It would not be a dominant deck. No. In fact, I'm comfortable saying it would not be a dominant deck. I agree. There's no way. There's no way. So the question then is becomes, is there any other criteria that we should apply to keep it from being unrestricted? And my main concern is not turn one decks or swinginess. Even, I'm not even concerned about swinginess. I'm not concerned about going someone going, Chrome 
mocks, mocks opal, mocks balance. <laughs> right. I'm not concerned about that. What I am concerned about is the effect it would have on the, the few creature strategies that are in the format. Like people who want to play fish or humans like that. Wizards. Wizards. I'm just concerned that the presence of balance would be very harmful to those. Those ward spots. But I think that may be overstated. I think it's possible. I mean, those decks exist despite so many deterrents already. You know, it's not like Pyroclasm is that much worse than balance for those decks, right? And it's not as though the presence of four balance in a control deck is just omnipresent. It's not like they're playing balance on turn two and then again on turn three and then again on turn four. That's not how vintage works. Balance, yeah. it's it's a powerful reset button against a deck like, say, Rug Delver, but right. they're just going to rebuild. You're going to play balance. They're going to play a Goyf next yeah. turn. It's going to be fine. The fact that you got a two, maybe a three for one means that your deck is viable now, whereas that strategy isn't today because of decks like Fish and Delver. You're persuading me that balance is a safe understrike. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no, and you really can't construct a Masonette rack balance deck today. That's just not viable. That's, that was the first point. Yeah, I, made, I mean, that, I agree with you completely. That's not viable. You're not going to have, you could have a creatureless quote-unquote control deck more so than you do today. I mean, you might see yeah. a return of the creature deck that has only one or two creatures in it as opposed to the 8 to 10 that some of them have now. The most busted thing you can do is probably just play like a, I don't know, like a Rogue Hermit-like deck that has like just a very few lands, a huge amount of artifact accelerants and cheap artifacts, and then use balance. But you're going to have to protect balance. You're going to have to make it resolve. Yeah. It's gonna have to, you're going to have to draw it. It needs to be situationally relevant. I think I, I think it opens up exist interesting new archetypes. It does. It also interacts interestingly with archetypes. For example, balance versus dredge. That's a very interesting thing, situation. Yeah, you know? it is. You, you reset them for a moment, you know, like what happens? Also, balance has never existed as a four of in a world that included planeswalkers, which is a That's case true. for and against its power. If your opponent plays Jace, your balance just got a lot worse. Conversely, yeah. if you have Jace and they have a board of two or three creatures, your balance just got a lot better. So I think it creates interesting but, tension. But Jace generates card advantage by it's like a JM Day tome. That's it's the modern JM Day. Naturally, tome. but my point is it's in in that JM Day tome wasn't interacted with by Brit Balance. It has that same kind of double edged sword. Yeah, exactly. And you're going to be losing cards from hand. Yeah, resolve balance. It's card disadvantage. Yep. A lot of times. Well, that's why control decks historically did not run that balance. That's why the deck did not run balance. Right. Except maybe in the sideboard. I just think so, it, I think it creates interesting options. I think it's going to create some blowouts. It's going to create a couple of scenarios that some players don't like. Some Rug Delver players are going to look at it and say, hey, wait a second, this is terrible. That card is a one-sided Wrath, or, you know, two-mana Wrath. And uh, to which I would say, not exactly. I have to construct my deck around it, and it it leads to interesting options. Do you play four Bobs in your balance deck? Yes. You know, it, playing the opportunity to play four Balance might actually be an attraction of the format. Yeah, that's if true. If they were to unrestrict Balance, that might be a reason that people would want to play type or Vintage. Yeah. So I think it, it's just like Flash, in my opinion. It's a safe unrestrict as long as you're comfortable with what's going to happen. And it's going to create some things that certain types of players don't like. Well, I think I don't think it's like Flash. I think that it, maybe in the more broadest sense it is, but I think Flash is a car. The problem with Flash is that it creates a non-trivial number of turn one wins, which pe- people don't like. So that's in that category of I things see. you don't people don't like. Whereas balance, you could make a similar case for balance. But the chief danger in balance isn't even turn one swings. It's wiping out creature decks. <laughs> well, that's, I agree that that's the chief 
concern, but I would say that a, a non-zero number of players would say, I don't want to get balanced down to no cards in hand on turn one. Yeah. <laughs> that I, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, let me put it another way. If you built a deck with that as its goal, you could probably do that about as much as Flash could win on turn one. And that's a very risky thing. I mean, imagine balancing the dredge player down to one card. <laughs> no, I, look, I, I, that's not my point. My point is that I yeah. think you could balance someone down to no permanence and no hand about as often as Flash could win on turn one. That's what I'm saying. Uh, about as often as Flash could win I'm on turn sure. one. Possibly. If you Possibly. built your deck with that as its goal, I think you could yeah. do that. I also think it's important to remember that, that Type 1 slash Vintage decks in the in modern era are able to recover much yes. faster than in the past were. Totally I mean, true. You can, I mean, there's so... so like, And as you, you said, know, that play is a game-losing play against Dredge. <laughs> Yes. So, it, I think it's interesting. I, it creates interesting tension. You, you, you might bring back five color stacks of balance. That would be really exciting. It could. It could be. It could. It could at least make it more viable than it is today. I mean, today it's not even viable. There's also more ways to stop it. I mean, I mean, certainly, certainly, Mindbreak Trap is going to stop balance for anything that's relevant, right? And Spell Snare and Fluster Storm. But I'm saying on the turn one on the draw when oh, yeah. they attempt hand. That's right. That balance is not the last card, so Mindbreak Trap is going to hit that every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. That would be definitely be a tension for that deck. What I was definitely going to point out as well: spell pierce and fluster storm. Yep. So, and not to mention spell snare as well. Right. So I'm wow. I, <laughs> you know, we talk, I used to think about balance a couple of years ago in 2008 as a possible unrestricted mm-hmm. negotiation environment, but I'm I think it would be a, a fairly exciting unrestricted. I think the only things keeping it on the list are inverse nostalgia. I think people have bad memories. I agree. Of what that card did 10 years ago, 15 so years ago. So are we both pro unrestricted balance? Yeah, yeah. We're going to get a bunch of people saying we're crazy. But I, I think, think, I, think comes, I think it comes to our grasp of the data and the metagame and how it actually play out, as opposed to the hyperbole of people saying, how can you possibly unrestrict this card balance? I think we're right. <laughs> I think it's safe. I think it leads to some scenarios that people don't like. I think it's worth stating at this point, as we're partway through this process, that we're not suggesting you would do all these things at once. We're taking Absolutely. every one of these considerations totally in a vacuum, meaning apart from all our other recommendations. Isolation. Yes, yeah. I would. I the even combinations of two of these things could have really far-reaching impacts. Yes. yes. Even things unrelated like flash and balance. Who knows? If you had yes. access to four of each of those, yes. they might go in the same deck and create a really yeah. bizarre result. Yes. So where do you want to go next? I really want to talk about library. Steve, library has been restricted for years and years and years, and I think it's important to note that nobody really has any experience with playing in a four library environment. Almost no one. Almost no one, that's true. We have an environment now where we have several decks that use library, at least would use library, and some clear candidates for using multiples, but in my opinion, it's pretty clear that the environment would not support a four library deck and if you attempted to construct one, it would have other key weaknesses that would keep it in check. The dominance of workshops is one clear example, but also simply other wasteland-based decks like Noble Fish and some others. And the simple fact that our mana bases these days are stretched so thin thanks to the onslaught fetch lands. Well, it may. I, I'm not sure that, as I hear your point, what I hear you saying is that a multiple library deck would be kept in check by certain strategies. The way I see it is, I think a multiple library deck might be kept in check by the structure of the format, so that it's not particular strategies so much as it is general strategies. So, for example, any deck that has four libraries has that 
that fundamental problem. See that it's not developing early colored mana. Yes. The difference between library and strip mine. Someone could say, well, decks used to play four strip mines, or control decks to play four wastelands. The difference is that those decks are creating one for one tempo. So strip mine is denying your opponent mana at the same time you're denying yourself access to colored mana with each land drop. Whereas library doesn't do that. It's a trade off. You're getting card advantage for your opponent developing their mana base. In a sense, it's like playing a chess game where you you're you're building up more pieces on the board, but you're not developing or opening up any position or building a position so to me to me library has a, a fundamental limitation in that you are unable to develop a normal vintage game state in the early game to the same extent you won't be able to interact if you decide to for example if you have an opening hand that has spell pierce or flusterstorm and a library and an island you have to decide which to play Yes, I think that's entirely true. The value in this modern metagame for a blue-based control deck in having access to its one-mana counterspell is so strong and so necessary. You have to, you can't afford against workshops to play that library on turn one instead of that island. You need that steel sabotage to win that game. And right. similarly against other decks, you need that spell pierce or that fluster storm. You can't just play a library on turn one and ride it to victory like you could in 1996. Right. It's not to say that you couldn't build a four library deck, but I think there are severe limits on the general strategic strength of a, of such a deck. I mean, there may be some natural equilibrium, like of two two libraries, but let's be honest, library is not the card it used to be. I mean, library, you know, ten years ago was extremely powerful and and was even used in in gush decks, you know, five, six, seven <laughs> years ago. But it has sort of waned. Um, it, it it because it's just the format is so fast that the card advantage provide provide library is so incremental and not just incremental like Bob is powerful but it's not just incremental like Jace or Bob it's it's incremental at a severe cost which is that you lose early development that is so crucial in the format in the ways that you just mentioned mm-hmm. the other thing is it might be interesting you know there might be like a natural equilibrium where you know land still decks play two main deck libraries and two sideboard but what ha- what happens is that if there's a structural limitation it may be the case that decks some decks push so hard control that they open up other avenues for attack so that you know Bomberman decks or Landstill decks or really hard control decks that want to use libraries, you know, have to fight that level, fight it out at that level. Much like, you know, there's a fight right now with Flusterstorm, Mental Misstep, etc. But those cards are just dead in other matchups. So it exacerbates or that element of the format where people have to make these hard cost-benefit decisions about cards that are great in certain matchups and very weak in other matchups. And library is just the epitome of that. I think you've hit it right on the head. The card would be playable in multiple Certain decks like Landstill would want more than one, but it wouldn't be a problem. It really wouldn't. I think that an unrestricted library is long overdue for this format. I think it was the right thing to do two or three years ago even. I don't see any problem with unrestricting library at, at this standpoint. In fact, I know we've said it earlier in the show that we wouldn't propose to make multiple changes at a time. But honestly, I think you could unrestrict library and something else, probably, that just interacts with so little else on the restricted list. Obviously, that's an oversimplification, but I honestly believe that this change is overdue. Well, I think there's a very specific question, and that is, where would four li- multiple libraries go? And I think we've already answered that to some degree, and that's hard control decks like Landstill would be a very natural home for library. I think my, my greater concern, though, is that the vintage metagame is not a unified metagame. There are essentially pocket metagames where people play different kinds of strategies, and the metagame is warped in a non-pejorative sense towards certain kinds of strategies. I just I, I bear some concern that um, in very control-heavy metagames, 
lib- multiple libraries might become, if not unfun, dominant and and discouraging for people in the format. Relatedly, relatedly, and this is a non-trivial concern, is the extreme cost. Library is the rarest card, one of the rarest cards in Magic. There are only five million Arabian Nights printings. Um, that it's it's one third as rare as a Mishra's Workshop. Sorry, it is there are one third as many libraries as there are Mishra's Workshops. But the ratio holds. There are fifteen million antiquities cards. So there's a real concern that unrestricting library would make the format, at least for some decks, very cost prohibitive. More so than it is today, that but it would only be an incremental issue, of course. You're, you're talking know, I mean, about if a landstill player has a fully powered deck today, they've got Black Lotus and and two to three Moxin and a full set of Volcanic Islands and Force of Wills. I mean, if a library would, yeah. of course, immediately double or triple in price to say three hundred dollars or four hundred dollars, but that's so like a library right now is I don't know one fifty. Right. If a library becomes unrestricted, it could easily become a two hundred three hundred dollar card. Which means it's more than you know. It, you're essentially more than quadrupling the cost of of using library. I don't think that's the kind of concern that should stop them from making such a decision, though. Fair. That's a fair point. Some people may be concerned about that. I mean, just one thing that we hadn't mentioned is that you know, library has diminishing returns. If you play a turn one library, it might be very good, but what about turn one library followed by turn two library? Right. I mean, one argument is that libraries and multiples are stronger because they reinforce each other. But the downside to that is you're delaying each turn that you actually get a colored mana source into play. Yes. At least a colored mana. There are certain games, especially control-type mirrors and certain combinations of draws where that would be a very back-breaking play. You get double library and double force and just overwhelm your opponent such that your first blue source turns on a highly relevant spell like a spell pierce or a fluster storm and you just overwhelm your opponent after that. You could construct scenarios like that. I think they'd be aberrant. They wouldn't be the norm. And as you alluded to, pocketed metagames, we know that in the American Northeast, there are a heavier preponderance of landstill players. And so right. in and that the, environment, the, there might be the, lots of three and four library landstill mirrors. I mean, the format is so distorted out there to some extent that people are actually talking that playing on the draw is the optimal play. Yeah. That being on the draw. I mean, that, that shows you how different that metagame is. And that seems, that is definitely a metagame in which library would be ripe for abuse. But maybe, maybe, you know, that's okay. Maybe that, that, that's, maybe giving players more tools like that is a good thing because, because it pushes people into an even harder control role, which then again opens the door for other sorts of, of strategies and, and tactics. So I, I, I don't see. I think it's fine. I have some, I have some reservations about unrestricting library, but I don't see any clear, any sort of like imposing barrier to doing so, like I do with balance. You know, that balance could just wipe out creature strategy. So I think, I think I'm more okay with library than, than certainly more okay with, I don't think, I don't think library is going to create any obvious or immediately dominant archetype. And if it does create a dominant archetype, it's something that I think it would be a temporarily dominant. And I don't think it's unfun. I think it's a very fun card. Um, so I, I really don't see any compelling reason to keep library restricted. It, at a minimum, it would be a worthwhile experiment. And I, I'm against unrestriction experiments. But let's be honest, this was restricted, you know, at the, pretty much the origin of the format. So why not? <laughs> All right. I think we should move on to Demonic Consultation. This is another card that's been restricted for several years, and I think that it really has an interesting, more so than many other cards that have interesting interactions in multiples like Library, like Balance and Flash, I think Consult has its wholly other metric by which you need to measure it, because the card as a restricted card is only played in a very narrow band of decks. There are, I mean, you could say combo decks, but there are even several combo decks that can't play it and don't. 
But right. as soon as you have sure. access to four of them, your ability to manipulate your deck and to abuse the card becomes dramatically amplified. Well, the first thing we should say about Demonic Consultation is that it was restricted in 2000, and it was restricted with one other card, that being Necropotence. It was, in a sense, it's one of those cards where it's a victim of being restricted with another card. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, like Burning Wish was a victim of being restricted with, and it, because it was in the same deck as Lion's Eye Diamond. That doesn't necessarily mean it was it was worthy of restriction at the time, because in a sense, restricting Necropotence solved the problem. But it was part of a dominant strategy, that being, of course, Necrotrix mm-hmm. in 2000. Um, and I think the second point that we should make is that you know, although a long period of time has elapsed, what's become more and more evident over the years is that there are basically two different kinds of decks in vintage. Broadly speaking, there are decks that use a good part of the restricted list and decks that don't. Um, and those, the decks that, because I, over the last five years, has unrestricted so many cards, they've essentially unrestricted cards that don't see play in either the, the restricted list combo deck or the big blue control deck. And every, and essentially, those are the two decks that utilize the vast majority of the restricted list, and the rest of the decks don't. So Mishra's Workshop decks, Dredge decks, Fish decks, they pretty much use a very minimal amount of the restricted list. Pretty much just the mana acceleration, you know, and that's about it. So Demonic Consultation is this interesting card where the decks that would most abuse it are predominantly, you know, utilize restricted cards like Tinker, Yawgmoth's Will, and the like, and Time Vault. And those are decks that simply cannot abuse Demonic Consultation. So the question is, given this dichotomy in the format between decks that rely heavily on the restricted list and decks that don't, are there decks that don't rely on the restricted list that would be problematic if they had access to four consult? That's the question. Decks like Ad Nauseam Tendrils and Storm Ten, for example, or Belcher. Precisely. I think the thing that most people would point to would be a deck like Ad Nauseam. Would Ad Nauseam deck, which could use, which has four Ad Nauseam, four Tendrils, and four Dark Ritual, become and four Chrome Mox, become too good with this card? That's that's really, I think, the critical question. And I think that's an open question. I'm of the opinion that that's the sort of question that the player base and Magic R&D in general don't want to risk answering with uh, an unrestriction. That that is to say, there are plenty of other unrestrictions that lead to risky things, and that's the sort of one that nobody even wants to risk finding out. <laughs> so you, I think your point is well taken. It's a high risk. Unre- it would be a, a risky unrestriction. Maybe not high risk, but risky. Uh, you, the, the, the good news is though is the Rogue Hermit deck, even though it doesn't rely heavily on the restricted list, can't use it either because it can't. It has so many important singletons that has to dread up, dread up, dread return into play. Right. And use for its combo. But I mean, it would certainly fit into a into a black Belcher deck, into a ad nauseum deck. Um, and I think it would actually be potentially exciting in like a, a five color workshop deck as a multiple. You know, it could be used in a, in, a, in, a, in a bug fish deck as a multiple. So there is this, the flip side of it is, although it's risky in terms of these, uh, you know, high powered decks like ad nauseum, it potentially is quite useful in the other side of those, of those decks that don't rely heavily on the restricted list. I, think I mean, you could, it, put it, I, you could put it. You could put it. You could put into a, a, a dredge deck with with mana, right? I mean, you could use it to find bizarre. Absolutely, and I think you've identified plenty of viable options for what could be. I just think that the interesting options are far overshadowed by the really dangerous ones. I think that if that was unrestricted, people would be very, very wary of the ad nauseum or like-minded decks. The kind of deck that has four Pact of Negation is the kind of deck that people don't want to see around. 
Yep. I think, though, ultimately it's an empirical question. I mean, it's one of those things that you don't need a, a, a huge metagame or to test out. You could just, someone could just put together a four demonic consultation ad nauseum deck and see how it runs against the field and see if it's too powerful. But, but yeah, I would, I would not, I would not, immediate, I would not restrict this card because of that particular threat. You know, that's an interesting point. We never really touched prior to now on what it means to actually legitimately test the theories having to do with, um, a given unrestriction. Well, my view is that it's, it's too difficult to do. Two people can't represent a metagame. Three people can't represent a metagame. Even two very skilled players, they just don't. Metagames are complex systems that can't be represented by a few people. They're, they have emergent properties that can't can't be distilled or understood in that way. I think, though, in this particular case, the question isn't what would demonic consultation do to a metagame. The question is, would it create this particular problematic deck, this ad nauseum deck? And that's something that I think could be figured out without having to go through a full metagame, but, you know, a future, future vintage league in a sense. Right. I think that's good to recognize people. A lot of people tend to say, I could play this against that and it wouldn't be a problem, but it's nigh impossible to speak for a metagame, as you've said. Yes. So I think we both vote not to unrestrict this card. I think so. Let's move on and talk about Fast Bond. Fast Bond is a fascinating card in that it is obviously, it suffers like Consult did with Necro due to its proximity to Gush in um, almost every one of its recent play examples. And a lot of people would say, well, Gush was unrestricted, but at this time, it's not really, it doesn't have a large factor in the metagame at all. It occasionally shows up in, in this day and age in the last year or so, despite the fact that it has recently won Vintage Champs. But mm-hmm. do you think, uh, at face value, question number one, if Fast Bond's unrestricted, do you think Gush becomes a problem in the metagame? I'm not. I think there's a sub-question to answer there. Is how many Fast Bonds would Gush decks play? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but my suspicion is less than four and more than one. <laughs> I agree completely. I think that three is where you would land, and I think certain lists would land on two. Yeah, I, I actually think the answer is probably closer to... I think, I think the idea of, um, you know, there's, there's really a powerful dynamic where you can go turn one fast bond and either it resolves and you have a gush and you can just immediately gush into a jace or your opponent mental missteps it and it's basically bait for a more powerful spell later on. Um, you know, I think that there is something to be said for the gush fast bond jace dynamic, particularly given the centrality of jace and planeswalkers in the format right now, that you essentially just allow fast bond to accelerate out planeswalkers on turn one. And that is, that's undesirable but it's not it's not incredibly clear to me that unrestricted fast bond would actually make gush that much more powerful than it is now but i do think it would make it more powerful i think the most obvious place for that is that fast bond is one of the best tools gush decks have for for fighting workshops but i don't think that unrestricted fast bond is actually enough so i know that's a lot to tease out but that's sort of my my first thoughts on it i agree in addition to all of that there are other engines for fast bond which are not allowed by the fact that it's restricted but that would come into being i think with the ability to wasteland strip line ghost quarter things like that right many of the things that went into the old turbo land lists with horn of greed and crucible and fetch lands and gush and such i think that you would see some people trying that i'm i do not believe that that creates a dominant archetype either i mean i think that deck yeah there are plenty of ways to fight that archetype too yes. and that's definitely the sort of combo deck that we don't have in today's environment a true engine based combo we don't have and haven't had for years that's right. Which I think is interesting from a format diversity standpoint and a historical standpoint. But I am woe to introduce something that just returns us to having to restrict Gush. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, the fact, the fact though, that fast bond wouldn't necessarily be a four of isn't dispositive. It isn't determinative here because, Agreed. I mean, if you're unrestricted Yawgmoth will, it doesn't necessarily mean you play it as a four of, but still could potentially be a problem. Agreed. I guess as a general matter, I'm, I think that it, pr- it provides such potent engines with, with even without Gush, in the ability to do what we just said. I mean, you can generate infinite mana with a Crucible and you can wipe out your opponent's entire man- land base with a Crucible. Mm-hmm. So fast bond Crucible and fast bond Gush into a Planeswalker is just so potent. Is it, I mean, you think about one of the most annoying turn one plays in Vintage right now, which is Lotus Jace. Fast Bond essentially becomes the equivalent of that. It enables that, and I, I just think that's extremely undesirable. Even if it wouldn't necessarily be dominant, it's it's not good for the format. So you would liken it to, it, it, its most problematic uses, you would liken to Mana Acceleration. I think that's right. I think from that standpoint, it's completely fair to say that it has its place among the other restricted Mana Accelerants like Soul Ring and Mana Crypt and such that just facilitate too many other things on the first turn. Yes. So it's not necessarily its engine capacities or the fact that it facilitates turn one gush more so than today, but that it just is sort of a universal in accelerating you to other broken stuff. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even have to be gush. I mean, you can go like turn one fast bond, mox mox, land land, jace. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, a, that's it's just... You have seen, turn one Oath of Druids with no Moxen. Yeah, exactly. Forbidden Orchard, Fast Bond, Land Land Oath. You'd see that happen occasionally. A number of other yeah, combinations. Exactly. What do you, we haven't even talked about? We haven't even talked about just going, you know, fetch land, fast bond, workshop, crucible, you know, then fetch out my, every land in my deck, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, play ghost quarter, do the same thing, <laughs> yep. you know, wipe out all of your lands. That's that's extreme. I think that's extremely undesirable. All right. I think I'm with you. I do not support the unrestriction of fast bond. The rest of the cards we don't have in an order here. Where do you want to go next? Where do you want to go? We've talked about it a lot in recent podcasts. I want to talk about Windfall. Okay. When we reviewed Whispering Madness, we talked a lot about the merits of Windfall, so we don't need to rehash that whole discussion necessarily. I think it's pretty clear, especially based on one of the ways you described it, about how unlike Time Twister and Wheel of Fortune, Windfall can sometimes be even better than a draw seven. Certain yeah. scenarios and certain deck construction approaches. I think that we discussed Whispering Madness to the point where we saw it as a possibility just because it had that aspect of it. Yep. To introduce a four windfall deck, I think is obviously too good and I think obviously would lead to lots more turn one wins. Yes. I think the main problem with Windfall is not that it uh, um, is better than a draw seven sometimes. I think the problem is that it is a very easy turn one play, um, especially when people are playing like Mox Opals and Chrome Mox. And even if a lot of decks in the format are prepared for a turn one Windfall, it's extremely disruptive when your opponent forcibly mulligans you into a new hand on turn one. And you know, there's no comparable draw sevens besides wheel, wheel, twister, and windfall that can do that. You know, so, so you know, whispering match can't do that with that sort of ease. Neither, neither can really anything else in the format. So I think that's the main problem is that you, you know, you basically have to have to stop it a force of will or a uh, mind break trap, and even mind break trap can't stop it a lot of times. I mean, if you just go like mana crypt, land, windfall. So I, I think I think windfall is. Very undesirable from a gameplay perspective for that particular reason. But I also think it would be a ridiculous boost to the restricted list combo deck. I mean, Windfall was the first one of the first cards restricted out of the Academy deck with, with for good reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
if I understand you correctly, you're pointing to the variance that's introduced even with a non-lethal windfall on turn one. Absolutely. So not only are you going to have some percentage of the games that are just one on the spot, but other percentages of games where player A windfalls, player B can't stop it, and gets a seven-card hand that's also a bad hand or unplayable, no lands. Absolutely. So I liken it to, you know, the um, you know back in the early days of Type 1, Strip Mine. Strip Mine was used, was so important in the format because 10 to 20% of the time, a Strip Mine might just win you the game mm-hmm. by cutting your opponent off of a, a critical colored source. The Mulligan, I mean, I hate to reinforce this stereotype, but it's an, an incredibly tactically important part of vintage. And to be able to windfall your opponent forcibly into a new hand before they have a turn is incredibly disruptive. I know the stereotype you're referring to, which we've laughed about in the past, about how the, the mulligan is the uh, the mid-game. <laughs> but the but your point is not just in the sense that if you don't mulligan properly, you lose on turn one, but mulliganing is also key in terms of your plan for a given game. Not not just exactly. turn one, but your plan for turns it's two, very, three, and four. It's very matchup specific. It's very sensitive to your your particular circumstance or what you anticipate that how the game plan to unfold what kind of sideboard cards you have mulliganing is incredibly important i mean in a workshop mirror you in a workshop you're looking for certain cards when you mulligan not you know not just a workshop and to be able to mulligan someone into like a no land hand or a hand that has the completely the wrong tools just pushes them out of the game in the way that you described it's just not you don't even have to win the game in a sense but you're just destroying your opponent's chances for winning the game all right, I don't think we need to belabor the issue any longer. Neither of us in favor of windfalls on restriction. Yeah. Let's talk about one that's a little more debatable, I would say. Let's talk about channel. Steve, Ooh. you've done some testing on channel, I know, and you've done some espousing on it in the the last couple of years. I don't remember how long ago the article in question I'm thinking of was. But right. give us your summation, I would say, of, of what channel would do or could do to the format. Well, it's very, very, very easy to cast turn one channel. I mean, ridiculously easy. All you need is a land and either an Elvish Spirit Guide, a Chrome Mox, a Mox Opal, a Lotus Petal, a Black Lotus, a Mox Emerald. And there's so many ways to cast turn one channel. It's a very reliable, it's a fairly reliable turn one play. The only thing keeping channel back is drawing the channel itself. Um, and once you keep that fact in mind, then it becomes extremely dangerous. Oh, and not to mention that you can use things like Metamorphose or Chromatic Sphere to, you know, to translate other colors into green. So I just think that um, it's essentially a very, very easy way to generate ungodly quantities of mana on turn one. I think that pretty much sums it up. And in addition to all of that, the relative ease of which to generate that kind of mana is that if someone succeeds in doing that, it is almost entirely game-ending plays that are going to result. Yes. And if that play succeeds, then the game ends. And if it doesn't, that player is probably crippled, and it just leads to coin-flippy outcomes that are, as we've said before, undesirable. Right. What do you make of the notion that channel is akin to many other aspects of, say, a Belcher deck? We have Belcher decks in the environment today. They make top eights every they now and then. channel. Yes, that's what I'm getting at is... The, the uh, what would you say to the notion that the effect we're talking about already exists in the format? The sort of all in on empty the Warrens, hope you have Flusterstorm, well, Mindbreak Trap kind of thing. I would ask people to look at those those Belcher decks and then ask if they want those decks to have four channel. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see my point? So I, I do, I mean, but, I'm, they may, but I'm trying to frame it they, another way. Not that how it would make those decks better, but 
how about the notion that that uh, that sensation already exists? Meaning those Belcher decks well, in question you know, it's not are already built around all-in plays that they can right. execute with relative ease. Yes, except that they they would they lack the degree of consistency that channel would provide. And um, you know, resolving channel, you you could make a much more focused and better list without channel. That isn't to say those the channel deck would dominate. That wasn't my sense, but it's just too consistent of a turn one win. The gold fishing I did had like channel decks at like fifty percent turn one wins. You know, and the, the the main thing is actually just drawing channel i just I just think it's be extremely undesirable from a play perspective but it's hard very difficult to gauge if it would be like tournament dominant or not i agree i mean you could I mean the things you could do with channel let's the obvious one is belcher but the other things you could play turn one m rockle mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you could play a bunch of you know artifact creatures like you know i don't know put together a, mon- a bunch of like a worm coil engine and a lodestone golem on turn one you you <laughs> could chain together the kind of mana fixers you mentioned earlier in chromatic star and chromatic sphere into a giant tendrils for sure exactly and there's all sorts of desirable things that channel enables it's it's kind of like uh like fastmon it's hard to say that that those cards would be like tournament dominant but they they just do stuff on turn one with such consistency i guess listeners may wonder well why why do i have concerns about channel and fastmon but not flash i just think that flash lacks the consistency you have to have all these other things assembled you know like you have to have the protean hulk in hand i just think that channel can be built in a more uniform way where where you will have naturally the tools to do whatever you want with it, similarly to Fastbond. The tools that you would put together in that to go around channel in that deck are all synergistic yes. and useful without the channel. Exactly. So you put together the stars and the, the mana morphos and the rituals and the elvish spirit guide. You don't draw the channel, but you still drew the belcher and you cast it on turn one anyway. The same is yep. not true. The opposite is true for Flash. Flash is filled with a whole bunch of cards that you have absolutely no utility for until you've found Flash. And then you yes. need them to go off. So it has both sides of the coin are completely different. Right. Which makes it a less consistent deck easier to disrupt. Steve, I picked the last few. What do you have on your list that you want to talk about? Let's talk about gifts. Let's talk about gifts I'm given. Cool. I... I- I think I mean, Gibson Given is a very intriguing card for a number of reasons. It has there are both reasons to unrestrict it uh, and reasons to keep it restricted. I think the reasons that, let's just go through the reasons to unrestrict it. Gibson Given was restricted at a time before Brainstorm and Merchant Scroll and were restricted. And clearly, the Gift Stack used for Brainstorm and for, for Merchant Scroll. Um, for and all, the other Gift Stack used for Thirst for Knowledge, which is also restricted. So all of the traditional tools that were built around Gifts are no longer unrestricted. The second reason or argument you could advance to unrestrict gifts is that uh, a significant amount of time has elapsed. And, you know, like it was restricted, I think, what, 2006? Whereas, you know, which which makes it closer to factor fiction than, I think, something like Thirst. The other thing is that there's a, the third argument, I think, for unrestricting it is that um, it's just not the best forecasting cost spell in the format. And that would be Jace. So the opportunity cost of the card, like a factor fiction, is quite high. Finally, I think there's a case to be made that workshop decks are so potent that that unless you have something that can generate recurring card advantage like a Jace, Gifts Ungiven just isn't good enough. That said, there are reasons to keep it restricted, and I think the most prominent is Snapcaster Mage. Um, Snapcaster Mage is basically what Recoup was, but just better. <laughs> so you would probably play like three or four Snapcaster Mages in any gift in any gift deck, and it would be really good. The one thing, though, that that I would say against that is that Graft Digger's Cage exists, and Graft Digger's Cage just murders gifts, just murders it. Mm-hmm. I mean, for people who don't know, the gifts combo, which gifts I'm given for recoup time walk, 
uh, Tinker and Yawgmoth's will. And no matter what they give you, you get to time lock Tinker for Colossus and win the game. Um, in this case, um, you would you, instead of recoup, you use Snapcaster Mage. But Gifts Ungiven, when your opponent has a Graph Digger's Cage in play, is just brutal. It's a factor fiction for two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> not even. Yeah, I mean, you can use it to generate card advantage, but it's not it's not as good. Not nearly as good. What? So, I mean, there's a lot of a lot going forward and against it. I, I kind of think that if it was unrestricted, it would it would probably be okay. But it's a high risk unrestriction. All right, I said a mouthful. What about you, Kevin? I wanted you to go first because I knew you would hit the nail on the head, and you've done it. I agree with everything you said. The I'm of the opinion that you could unrestrict gifts right now. It would quickly become the focus of some new blue-based control decks. And yep. but I'm unlike Thirst for Knowledge, it would not become I don't think the de facto draw engine. It would be and that's, it would make a niche blue deck, and I think that's okay. I think that's the the most important point. I don't think gifts. I don't think gifts would. Uh, let, me, let me flip it around. Gifts is a safer unrestriction than thirst. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't even think that's really debatable for the point that you just made. Um, I don't think it's seriously debatable. At least <laughs> I think gifts is a, is a safer unrestriction. It's more expensive than thirst. It's less. It's it's easier to disrupt than thirst. It has fewer components around it that are great compared to thirst. Compared to what it used to have, it's riskier. Uh, it's it's not it's riskier. It's not as good as is is um, Jace arguably. I, I completely agree. I think the the ner- thing that makes me nervous is how good Snapcaster Mage is, you know, and how how this deck would in- how that card would interface with Snapcaster Mage. But I mean, you know, one thing that did not exist when Gifts was unrestricted though was Time Vault, um, and so you could really potentially build a lot of focused Time Vault decks around it. But I don't know how they could be that much more focused than Time Vault decks are today, and they would probably be just as easy to even easier to disrupt than some of the Time Vault decks that exist today. So I, I would be. I'm not necessarily supportive of unrestricting gifts, but I don't think it's the. I don't think it's a terrible idea either. So if you had to rank cards to unrestrict, you'd put this one further down the list. Exactly. I would put it behind uh, library and flash. I think I'm in the same boat. I considered library to be really high up there in terms of unrestrictables. And I think that Gifts is pretty high up there, too. Again, not in conjunction with other things, of course, but if you're looking for something to do, I think Gifts is definitely a candidate. I think that the Jace comparison is just huge. If you were a deck builder today and you had access to four Jace and four Gifts, you would be really hard-pressed to choose Gifts over Jace at any point. The card is, even as a one-of, rarely played, and I mean rarely played today. Even in decks that have all the components you mentioned, decks that have Snapcaster, Time Walk, Yawgmoth's Will, these decks could execute the combo you just listed, and they still don't play it. If someday, like, Jace is restricted, then this is a very different conversation. But True. In, in an environment you have four Jace, Gifts looks shallow by comparison. Agreed. So... Should I put you down as being in favor or no? I'm ambivalent. <laughs> All right. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to it, but I wouldn't call for its unrestricted. Let's put it that way. I think that's if fair. People, let me rephrase, rephrase my position. If people continue and persist in calling for the unrestriction of thirst, I would call for the unrestriction of gifts first. I agree. I think gifts clearly the prior unrestriction. If you're if, you, if you're if, forcing if people, people to take a ordered approach to the matter, I would agree completely. Yeah, yeah. and if people really want thirst unrestricted because they want quote more tools for blue, let's start with gifts. <laughs> Good point. All right, we're getting down to the nitty gritty here. Let's let's go to Yogmoth's bargain. Okay. Uh, let's start with Yogmoth's bargain is a really interesting card. I mean, it's, it was designed as a, a fixed necropotence and was very swiftly restricted once people realized that it was, in many cases, better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have to, to turn. 
Um, you know, there is an argument to unrestricted. One argument to unrestricted is that, you know, it wouldn't necessarily create a dominant deck. The decks that play Bargain right now, like my Burning Tendrils deck, probably wouldn't play four, and they probably wouldn't. And that it's not even necessarily better than an Ad Nauseam deck. My, I think my Burning Tendrils deck would probably play, like, two Bargains. Maybe three, but I seriously doubt it would play four. That said, you could do a lot of things, you know, you could accelerate it quickly with a Dark Ritual, a Chrome Mox, you know, whatever, but it's still a turn three play the vast majority of the time. And every effort you make to make Bargain a turn two play just weakens your general deck. So I think the arguments for unrestricting Bargain are pretty strong in the sense that it's not necessarily better than Ad Nauseam, and it's a slow card. It's a turn three play. That said, I think the thing that makes me most nervous about Bargain is show and tell. Interesting. Interesting. Show and Don't you think so po- are, clearly we already have candidates for show and tell in Gristle Brand, so that functionality exists, but I think what you're getting at is it becomes more consistent. Absolutely. You could play four Gristle Brand, four Bargain, Dark Rituals, Show and Tell, and a bunch of blue cards. And you basically have it and you could play also like three Burning Wish or four Burning Wish and one show and tell on the sideboard. I just think it becomes ridiculously consistent. I'm very I'd be very nervous about that. I see. And I think, I mean, the question then becomes, I think, which needs to be restricted? <laughs> show and tell or bargain? I mean, I play show and tell in my, in my burning long sideboard. And it's ridiculously good. I, I just think, uh, I just think that it's, that bargains it would, it would probably necessitate the restriction of show and tell. <laughs> so you have to choose. <laughs> right. Between, but if show and tell is restricted, then I, I think bargain might not actually be okay as, as an unrestricted spell. Interesting. It's it are willing to accept like a turn three card that wins the game with pretty strong regularity if it resolves a six casting cost turn three card that wins the game with pretty regularity in type one in vintage it's interesting you've identified a meta trend when it comes to research and development they have pretty clearly demonstrated that they are not afraid to make game winning spells at exorbitant casting costs there's no reason, in my opinion, to believe that that trend is going to do anything other than continue. Gristlebrand, Omniscience, Enter the Infinite. Yep. Yep. That points to Show and Tell being the problem, skirting the casting costs on, on expensive permanents that win the game yep. in such a way that the expensive permanents themselves aren't the problem. It's the age-old yeah, I, dichotomy of, of power versus yeah. mana efficiency. You know, I think Show and Tell is doomed for restriction someday. Maybe not a year from now, but maybe five years from now. It's just inevitable. Interesting. I think that that's a sound theory. Obviously, we have no guarantees of this trend continuing, but I think it's a very sound theory. When you look at cards that eschew mana costs like Tinker, then show and tell is just, it's a natural extension of that. It could even cost the same as Tinker for Pete's sake, and it just has to come out of your hand. Bristlebrand was a particularly um, uh, a particular flashpoint for show and tell, especially in Legacy. Legacy players, a lot of the communities up in arms about show and tell. Naturally. So, yeah. And it's only a matter of time before things bleed in from Vintage and Legacy going both directions. We've already seen Sneak and Show style decks make a top eight in Vintage. It's by no means common, but it has happened. And I think that there's no reason to think it won't continue, especially if they print more goodies. So I'm the hearing you describe it, I don't think that additional bargains in a deck like Burning Tendrils is a problem, but I do see what you're getting out about the larger trend. And so I think it's awfully dangerous. Yes. I mean, you know, um, the other thing is, I, I think people need to understand just how slow this card is. So I'll emphasize this. It, it really is a turn three play. I mean, it's a play that you make, like, where you have, like, a turn one duress, a turn three threat that three threat that's countered, turn two threat that's countered, and then you drop bargain on turn three. Granted, you can play a turn one bargain, 
but it basically requires like a lotus or a double dark ritual. Um, it's a single digit I think, percentage though, play. That it's a single digit percentage. People, though, I think have some concern. Workshop players, I mean, Nick Detweiler's on, on record saying that he thinks it's an okay on restriction. Because, I mean, imagine how bargain works against shops, right? But I think, you know, when you get in this, this area where you run like ancient tombs and dark rituals, it becomes a more reliable play. I think the most important comparison is the one that I first made, which is Ad Nauseam. And Ad Nauseam does a very similar thing for five mana. The difference is the shelves that both, that both cards are using are very different. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the printing of Ad Nauseam was really a. You know, really, I think brought in, in brought, brought under the, the spotlight. Why bargain is here? <laughs> why in a way that people hadn't really questioned before. I think that if Nick is in favor of bargain restriction, I fear that he is viewing it from the standpoint of adding extra bargains to existing decks. And yes, bargain is a lot like true. windfall in that as soon as you have access to four of them, you construct your deck around it, and your deck becomes right. much better than even amped up versions of current decks. For yes. a windfall deck like a bargain deck, for example, you could make a case for a windfall deck that had multiple main deck Hercules recalls and Elvish Spirit Guides and such, such that the workshop player wouldn't stand a chance, at least in game one. Yes. And I think Bargain yes. has that same issue, like you said. You add the Ancient Tombs, you amp up the Hercules Recalls, and you get a more focused deck that then is better at fighting the hate than the current decks are. Yeah, I just I just think that there's no way around it. A, a four-bargain deck is a four-show-and-tell deck. There's just no way around it. It's just the best way to do it, and you'll just win the, ga- win the game the, immediately when it comes into play. Yeah. I mean, you get to play with all the blue lands, blue spells. That's all you're trying to do. Yes, I think that that's go ahead. I I think we might be able to save bargain for some future on restriction, but some things would have to change. Some new printings or yeah. something that really allowed that to stay within check. Yes, and I mean that's a that's a turn one play too. I mean think about it. Chrome Mox, Ancient Tomb, imprint imprint a blue spell, show and tell, up oh, pack of negation, your force, bargain, I win. Yeah. Right? I mean so, <laughs> I'll, I'll draw some Chrome Mox, some Mox and Mox Opal. Oh look. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Good luck. <laughs> Oh, and it's worth pointing out that bargain. This might is a tautology, but bargain is better the sooner you play it. As a turn one, as a turn three play, as you've described it, maybe you've yeah. fetched or taken a damage from a city of brass. Maybe your opponent had a creature attack yes. you. It's slightly weaker as incrementally over turns. On turn one, you get maximal yeah. benefit out of bargain. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is that um, any anytime you're not trying to cheat bargain into play, the best way to do it is the dark ritual, and the only real consistent way to do that is on turn basically turn two or three, and usually it's a turn three play because mm-hmm. you need basically like a ritual, a mox, and a land, a land. There you go. So. Yep. All right. So no on Yongamas bargain. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. If again, if show and tell is restricted, I think my answer might change. But as long as show and tell exists, you just can't unrestrict bargain. It's just you just can't. <laughs> All right. I want to switch gears back to one I think you can unrestrict, and that's regrowth. Regrowth. Steve, help me out. When was regrowth restricted? Regrowth, I think, was restricted in the second wave of restrictions, if not the third, either in February or March 1994. That's I didn't know the date in the year exactly, but I knew it was way back in the beginning. So aside from legacy players, no one has ever played in a four-regrowth four environment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the last people that played with four-regrowths are the same people who played with four balances and and. Four libraries, four libraries yeah. and four strip mines. I mean, we're talking archaeology at this point. So, 
before strip mines existed until 1990, 1999. That's crazy. Strip mine was reprinted in what, fifth edition? Fourth and fifth edition, was it? Strip mine was restricted in type two before it was restricted in type one. Oh, that's crazy. Strip mine was not restricted until Wasteland was printed. It's pretty clear the reason regrowth was, was restricted and remains constricted, sorry, restricted. And you've alluded to this on a number of occasions. It's his ability to amplify the effect of other restricted cards. I think exactly. that it's also pretty clear that by today's standards, that effect is rampant. We have that effect all over the place, and we have it in better cards. You need to look no further than, say, Snapcaster Mage, which is gleefully unrestricted. Now, obviously, yes. you can't Snapcaster a Black Lotus, so that's not a one-for-one one comparison. But my point is simply that... People already are casting and recasting the most broken spells in the format with regularity, and I don't think that regrowth adds incrementally anything that becomes degenerate or creates a degenerate strategy. It's just a useful, what I would call utility spell at this point. You would use it to get back a countered Oath of Druids or a countered Ancestral Recall on almost equal amounts. I mean, it's I think it's, it's going to be powerful, but not broken. And it's not going to lead to anything look, degenerate. I think the way you're looking at it is the right way, but I do think there is one exception to what your your analysis. Okay. And I think that exception is Gush. Okay. I think that it's... Um, and that's my main concern with the unrestricted regrowth, is that you could basically build a deck where you go... You know, you, all you do is you find the fast bond, and then you double the number of Gushes in your deck. So you can basically consistently do what you couldn't do before, which is Gush bond. You couldn't do you can't do now that brainstorm ponder and uh and scroll and scroll are restricted that you just gush regrowth the gush it's mana neutral because you're paying two mana to generate two mana but it's generating you two cards with each 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 iteration um and i think i think that's the problem with regrowth there is another problem potential problem which is just you know regrowth can allow you to take a ton of time walks in a row and you could you know there may be a way like i don't know with the janky personal tutor deck or intuitions that you can go really broken with a bunch of regrowths but i mean your point is well taken there's so many recursive cards in the format right now i mean you can play four snapcaster mage and etc cetera, etc cetera. how is regrowth better i think the way regrowth is better is is gush decks that said i'm not sure that a four regrowth gush deck is truly a problem there are also we don't have a control deck or a combo control deck in the format that consistently uses its graveyard as a primary win condition we have some that do use it occasionally like bomberman for example if we yeah, have I mean, one the that snapcaster decks do but they don't use it as a primary they use it as just another resource it's utility sure and, and no one's clamoring for the yeah. restriction of snapcaster mage the right. if we had a deck that tried to push that envelope and recursive and, and reliably win games with recursion like you've described I think the metagame could adapt, and it, it would be acceptable. We already have decks that are hedging against Dredge with things like main deck Nile Spellbomb. I think a tiny bit more of that and any kind of regrowth uprising would be quickly quelled. Yes. That's why I'm comfortable saying that it, it would be good, but it would primarily be a utility. It would be <laughs> like Snapcaster Mage is. Yeah, if it became too good. Um, I mean, there's just so many tools to stop it right now between Graph Digger's Cage and... Also, um, Regrowth has never been unrestricted, obviously, in most environments, but it's also never been in re- unrestricted in an environment with so many good counterspells. All the counterspells that people play these days that are the utility ones stop this thing. Mana Drain, Spell Pierce, Spell Snare, uh, 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 Mind Break Trap. Heck, even Misdirection does, ironically. This thing gets stopped by so much of the spell utility that we have today that it, it, it there's just no way it would get out of control. 
Well, I mean, your point about spell snare is well taken, but um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, in a format with a restricted list, this card does have the degenerate potential of, of you know, emphasizing those particular cards. And there does seem to be a critical mass of tutors right now. I mean, between mystical, imperial seal, demonic, yeah. vamp, you can probably pretty reliably find a card you want to regrowth a bunch of times. I think you definitely could. You're right about that. It won't be a primary strategy, though, I guess is what I'm getting at. It won't be. Yeah, so how many regrowth would you run? That's just like so many of these other cards, I think you're going to land on two or three. I think an Oath deck is definitely going to run two or three. I think you might see a Bug Fish deck, for example, modulate a little bit and run a couple of regrowths. Maybe emphasize Tinker a little bit more than they do today. I think you'd see a little bit of modulation, and that's pretty much it. You'd see decks adapt the way they've adapted Snapcaster Mages. Snapcaster Mage is a two or three of in most applications, and it's not even in all blue control decks. Yeah. I mean, there is another thing, which is a regrowth in an opening hand is not the best card. Very similar to library. As you observed with library, you can't spend... You can't... I mean, turn one Ancestral is a great play, and everyone's going to make it. But turn one Ancestral followed by turn two, regrow my ancestral. Whether or not you get to play it on turn two, the, the simple fact is you're not advancing your, your defense at all. Yep. Yep. It suffers from the same problems that library does. If you're spending all your mana just to draw cards, then you're opening yourself up to certain strategies, and I don't think there's any doubt that that is sometimes good enough, but not a problem. Bottom line, I'm in favor of regrowth on restriction. I'm opposed to it. I don't think it's the safest one on the list, but I still think it could be done. It's one of those cards that Patrick Chapin advanced as his super vintage format, where they unrestricted like eight cards. I just think that it, it ultimately is too broken as a general matter, and I think it would contribute to a problematic deck, maybe more than one. Um, and I think that it's especially dangerous with Gush. Okay, fair enough. Why don't you pick the next one? Let's go with Ponder. Good choice. Ponder was obviously part of the uh, the Fab Five that uh, got the axe <laughs> to use a uh, a retro uh, contemporary Worst reference. <laughs> so I, we've covered it before in a couple of different contexts earlier in this show and in others about how we generally speaking don't agree with that restriction at the time. Yes. But that's not really the issue anymore, is it? The issue is, do you th- would you introduce three more ponders into the environment today? Yes, that's the issue. I think that the environment could handle it. I think that it's just another example of one of those, what would it create and are you okay with that kind of scenarios? I don't think it would consolidate the metagame into an obviously best deck or anything like, say, Thirst Might. And I think it would amp up blue a little bit, but at the same time, Ponder is not a game-ending or even strategically dominant play for blue. Turn 1 Ponder opens you up to other things that workshops could do to you, for example, and I just don't think it's going to push anything else out of the metagame, so... I'm in favor of it in and of itself. Well, you know, as as with so many of these issues, these cards, the issue is defined in multiple ways. The, the first and most important is, would this card create a dominant deck? Um, and the second is, would this card create a like a turn one consistent turn one deck or something of that nature? You know, be be tactically problematic like a fast bond or a channel, or to a lesser extent a flash. The way I look at this card is that first and foremost, I think it might make gush too 
good. Gush right now is at a very nice place where it's playable, it's legal, thank God. <laughs> you know, it's been it's been restricted twice already. I don't want it to be restricted again. So I'm very happy that I can play four gushes, that I have the option to play four gushes. The only reason I don't play four gushes right now is because I don't think there's a gush deck out there that is consistently good enough against workshops. And the second reason I don't play gush gushes is because I just love playing combo right now. But if I you know, my, my Doomsday deck is really strong against everything except for uh, except for workshops. It's a hell of a lot of fun. I just think that Ponder is too good in the Gush Bond engine. It makes the Gush... The, right now, here's the thing. If Preordain did not exist, I think Ponder might be okay. But between four Preordain, four Ponder, and four Gush, I think you can get a very, very consistent Gush Bond engine like you used to be able to do. Close, close to like you used to be able to do. And I think Ponder would put Gush over the top even more than Regrowth would. I think Regrowth is a safer unrestrict vis-a-vis Gush than Ponder is. That's the first and most important point, is that I think it just makes the Gush Bond engine, not Gush, but the, bo- the Gush Bond engine, too powerful, too potent, and too consistent. But the second thing is that it really is a one-mana impulse. It sees four cards as a very unique function. It is situationally better than even Brainstorm, because on turn one, you play Ponder. If you don't see any lands, you can shuffle away and try and get close to a second one. That's not something you can do with Brainstorm. If you Brainstorm on turn one and see no lands, and you had kept a one-land hand, you're screwed. But not the case with Ponder. Ponder, because it's like an impulse, is also extremely potent with Oath of Druids and other two-card combo decks. I mean, I think it would make decks like Show and Tell, Oath, all those things ridiculously consistent and much better. I don't think we need Ponder. I think Ponder does too many good things. It makes decks too consistent in, in, a, in a problematic way. I think Ponder also makes it harder to unrestrict other cards I'd like to see unrestricted. So I'm I'm not in favor of Ponder, first and foremost because of Gush, the Gush Bond engine, and secondly because I think it's too efficient and too consistent in a format where you already have full preordained. You've certainly identified the places in which it would have its amplifying effect. I simply don't think that if you take any or all of those examples and make them even twice as good or twice as consistent as they are today, that, that that's any kind of a problem. And, and, and just think about it. Like, Ponder would be in, in a UR Delver deck is ridiculous. I just think it would be instantaneously, it would boost Gush decks right now immediately, a huge shot in the arm. I think there's a very real danger it makes them too good. I mean, UR Delver was one of the best decks in the format last right before Vintage Champs, was it not? <laughs> and that had, like, three Gushes, so... It was very popular, yes, and it did very well, but what has it done since then? I just don't think that these decks you've cited, doubling their effectiveness right now, to use an arbitrary term, but... If you were to double the amount of Oath or Doomsday or Blue, Blue Red Delver that are showing up in top eights today, that would still be okay. I mean, I could chalk that kind of change up to variance right now. I don't consider anything you listed to be a problem for the format. It's true. Gush decks are not a problem for the format right now. But that, but I think you underestimate how much of a boost Ponder would give them. It, it's by, it's so much better than Preordain. And all the people who say Preordain's better, don't, they don't understand how Preordain, how, how, Ponder would work in Gush decks. Preordain might be, in some general sense, or in particular archetypes, better than Ponder, but because Gush decks are constructed on a light mana base, intentionally light mana base, where you generate virtual cards in it, 
advantage. That's one of the key forms of advantage that Gosh decks provide. Ponder is a very unique card in being able to provide it in a sense, in a way that no other one mana spell does besides Ancestral. I mean, it's the only card where if you don't see, you can keep a one land hand with Ponder, and if you don't see a land in the top three, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you know, that's that's the thing that Ponder does that Gush decks love, and I just think it's just far too dangerous. Not to mention its other its other benefits, and the fact that Gush decks aren't performing dominating right now doesn't mean they aren't viable. I mean, we've seen in the in the last era of Gush, in which it's been unrestricted, it's all and I got second and third place at the Vintage Champs, and I cons- was consistently winning tournaments all over the United States with Gush. You know, for that entire summer and and that fall and winter. So to say that Gush decks, you know, aren't doing anything right now is not some structural deficiency in Gush decks. It's just the way the metagame has evolved at the moment. They could easily come back, and when they do, and they will at some point, I think Ponder would make them too good and would push towards a re-restriction of Gush for a third time. And believe me, if it, I believe that if it's restricted a third time, it's not coming back. Four Ponder has never existed in the mental misstep fluster storm era. Granted, that, but I think that's actually I think that actually is an argument on the other side that 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 that, that the decks that would use best use mental misstep and, and flusterstorm are actually the gush decks that would use ponder. Okay, that's fair. Well, you are clearly not in favor of it. I still think it would be okay. It's pretty far down my list, meaning I don't think there's any way or reason that it would happen. But I think if you had to draw a line partway down this list and say okay, not okay, I would say it's okay. I guess I'm a Fair little enough. more lenient about things that that create these potential engines like regrowth and ponder than you are. Yeah, yeah, I just I just I think it might just be my affinity for gush that's motivating my fear here. I just think ponder both cards are really powerful with gush, but ponder is the particular problem. I mean, you basically have a critical mass to build the So just think about it. You the last time gush was legal, you you had four merchant scroll, four brainstorm and four ponder, right? You lost you lost nine cards. You got gush back. You got you replace some of those cards with preordain. You get to play with things, you know, you can replace some of them with things like you get some gut you get some jaces and things like that in the mix. I just think that Ponder puts you back in that that mode where you basically have a really compact, extremely powerful engine that can that becomes almost portable across archetypes, like it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You remember that? Where it's just Absolutely. like you just put these like 16, 17 cards in all these decks. And I I just think it's it's I mean, when you talk about decks like UR Delver being on the cusp, et cetera, et cetera. I just think the risks are so high that it puts Vintage right back in that space again, in a similar space where Legacy is. I'm just super, I'm just not bored. We, we have, we're going in circles now, but I just wanted to reemphasize that last point to try and give a different kind of perspective on it. You know, it's interesting. Ponder, looking through the list of what we've discussed here, Ponder is actually very similar to Thirst for Knowledge in how we've analyzed it, in that you're saying it would compress the best draw engine down to being gush and lend more consistency to the things that are wrong with that engine, basically. Very similar, yes. But it has all these additional benefits as well, which is that, like, like being an impulse for Oak you know, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And in that sense, I can understand shying away from unrestricting cards that are just lending consistency to lots of archetypes. Lots of, or, or, or maybe eliminating archetypes and taking whole colors and whole strategies and just compressing them down into the most consistent version. Yes. I think that it's a fair viewpoint to be against that on principle. And I think Ponder fits into that category. I don't, we're getting low on cards that I think are worth debating here. There's obviously still tons of the restricted list left, but there's also tons of it that's not worth talking about. 
I definitely yeah. want to touch on Trinisphere, though. You and I, okay. I think, are both on record saying that the Trinisphere restriction, when it happened, was not necessary at that time. Yes, I was. Yep. And and, I, and I'm with you for all the same reasons you are, I think. But obviously, life is different now. Workshops are very strong, almost oppressively strong. You, should, you say that we should explain why we opposed it. Okay, that's fair. Because it might sound might sound unreasonable to our audience. You can set the background. I, I have my own perspective as a user of Trinisphere, and you have another perspective as well. So go ahead and set the stage. Sure. So Trinisphere was printed in, in February of 2004, and I remember, Kevin, as soon as it was printed, we started testing it immediately. I think it was we started testing it within like 24 hours of it being spoiled. You just had cards that had a big three on them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we immediately knew it would be very powerful, and it was. Um, and it was allowed to exist for an entire year. So it was restricted the following March of 2005. And in that time, we saw workshop decks become a big part of the metagame. And in fact, they had half of the Vintage Champs top eight in 2004, but they didn't win. And they weren't necessarily winning all the major Star City Games Open tournaments, and there were a ton of them. So we had a lot of good data to understand the impact of Trinisphere in terms of metagame dominance. And from a purely statistical perspective of metagame dominance, Trinisphere was not metagame dominant. That was why I opposed its restriction. It wasn't restricted on grounds of metagame dominance, though. It was restricted because it was unfun. The problem with Trinisphere is that there are basically only two answers to it. Force of Will or Wasteland. Either you Wasteland the workshop to try and create parity and get back in the game, or you run your own workshop, or you, you force the Trinisphere. Um, control Slaver decks thrived in that environment, and, and my concern was that Trinisphere is a necessary evil to give workshops sufficient power and the game wins to sort of make them competitive in that kind of environment. So so the, I was afraid that if you under, if you restrict Trinisphere, you'll kill workshops. That turned out not to be well-founded, and partly it was unfounded because the net, because the, the, the final sets, Fifth Dawn, etc., had given workshops over the course of Mirrodin Block enough tools to continue to compete. And I can only add to that that as a player of workshops almost exclusively during that time period, I became very comfortable with the operational risk-reward that you described with Trinisphere. I played a turn one Trinisphere on many a game, and it won me several I played a turn one Trinisphere in many a game and lost because of it. Not just lost that game, but lost because I played a turn one Trinisphere. And the reason was mostly to do with either overemphasizing it and getting force of willed or overemphasizing it and getting wastelanded and therefore not participating in my own game. So I was very comfortable with personally from personal experience and in theory with the fact that this card was, I think, well balanced in the format, had lots of risk reward and the format had was still evolving in its response to it. The deck that I had the most success with only had three Trinispheres in it for that reason. It was still relevant, but it was not the focus any longer. Right. You won the last major Star City Games Open where Trinisphere was legal with only three of them. It was awesome. <laughs> and you had four Sphere of Resistance, which was more tactically important against Control Slaver. I had the same number of Trinispheres in that deck as I did Chains of Mephistopheles. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it, all of that was there to combat thirst. Exactly. People should understand that. And that was still the four brainstorm era as well. All of that having been said, 
today's world is different. It's possible, though, that the Trinosphere would have eventually needed, likely, that it eventually would have needed restriction. I agree. But, but what but what Trinosphere ironically did was it created a diversity of, of workshop archetypes, and actually it was only after Trinosphere was, was restricted that workshops actually won vintage champs. <laughs> so it's just a weird, a weird irony it was that year. So um, In this day and age, we have a lot of variety of workshop archetypes. There are several major configurations that people can people do use, and you can point to. Not to the same degree that you used to have. I mean, there used to be like Roman Uba stacks, five color stacks, the mud. Now it's pretty much consolidated into mud variants. That's like true. Forge. Yeah, I, I I definitely should have pointed that out to start with. That we're living in a post colored workshop decks era. <laughs> there used to be a point. There was a pivot point where some people were in favor of mono-brown mud and other purists were saying, oh, no, you want the colors. All these broken cards are just too good not to play. And the mono-brown players eventually became the standard over time to the point now where a workshop deck that has colored mana symbols in it is a rarity at best, Phyrexian mana notwithstanding. But I think that in this day and age, workshops need to be, we need to guard anything that would potentially improve workshop decks for reasons we've talked, touched on a number of times before. And they're at risk of becoming too coin flippy. And you've gone on record and at length on this in forums and whatnot. But uh, I, I just think that our audience probably appreciates pretty well how strong workshops openings are today, how uniform they are, and giving that deck access to three more Trinospheres would only serve to make them more consistent and just make maybe what are marginal wins now, things you have a chance of fighting back at, just completely hopeless. Yeah, it's basically like a, a chalice for zero and a, sp- and a sphere at the same card. I mean, it's it's just good it's, point. It's, I don't think what I said. Good point. It's like yeah. a two for one. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like it's it's probably pretty high on the list of unrestrictable cards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I would not seriously consider. But why don't we transition now to possible restriction? Because I think this discussion dovetails with I think one of the the issues that are most on people's minds, and that is whether lodestone golem or chalice of the void should be restricted. I feel about those cards the way I felt about Trinisphere back then. Not that I would only play three of them in the case of Lodestone Golem, of course, because Lodestone has become the center point of that archetype. But what I would say is that the environment has adapted to the point where we can handle it. You do still win games by playing one or both of those cards on the first turn, and you don't win all of the games when you play those on the first turn. It's difficult. Decks are prepared for it. It does become a bit coin flippy, but I think we're still on the acceptable side of that pivot point at this time. I'm, I'm less convinced. You know, I'm generally opposed to restrictions. You have to have a lot of proof. The format can handle it. But I've become increasingly convinced that, that the workshop decks are just too oppressive right now. And I think the it's hard for me to pinpoint what, what the, the, the cause is, but I, I think that Lodestone Golem is probably at it, if, if not the leading cause. I think that it's just that workshop decks narrow and constrain what is possible in the format to such an extreme degree that that the diversity of the metagame and the ability of the format to flourish is is inhibited beyond what I think is acceptable. And while workshop decks aren't necessarily statistically dominant, I think we're back in that sort of trinosphere period where, I mean, what, there were four workshop decks in the, in the last vintage top eight? I mean, it was like 2004 all over, vintage championship top eight was like 2004 all over again. I think that I'm becoming increasingly convinced that we should either restrict Chalice or Lodestone Golem. And the question to me is, 
is becoming less whether something should be restricted than which one should be restricted. What do you make of the notion, and I know you and I have discussed this in private a lot, what do you make of the notion that there are still unexplored tactics with which to fight this scenario? Well, I think that there are unexplored tactics, but the problem is that each of them is is just trumped by what workshops can counter. So I can play with four ancient tombs, but workshops can play with four ghost quarters. Or, you know, I can play with spirit guides, but workshops can, um, you know, play with, you know, things that more spheres. They can go harder control or whatever the case may be. I just, I just think it's so hard. It's not that you can't break out of a workshop combo or combat workshops. The problem is doing something after that, getting out of the hole is only half the problem. Winning the game is, is equally difficult. It's just, you know, workshop decks are just, you, you basically have to dedicate huge parts of your sideboard and your main, and put main deck cards. It's so much worse than dredge. To add on to what you just said, you can do it, but they are much more consistent at applying the pressure than you are at getting out yes. of it. And also, yes, that's what the modern workshop decks are not just filled with proactive threats. They're, pr- they're filled with awesome reactive answers. Things like Metamorph yes. and Karn and Trike and Duplicant and Forge Master, things that can flexibly answer what you've done, the, the one thing you squeaked through. Yes. It's, you might have Lotus into Jace on the play, and you think, I've done it. I mean, there's nothing they can do about that. And they just go workshop, yeah. uh, Mox, Spear. Th- yes, Thorn, and Revoker on your Jace. And you look at your Jace, and you yep. look at what they just did, and you say, I can't even force yeah. that now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, the reason I debate between Chalice and, and Lodestone is because the obvious answer to Lodestone is just you play a lot of artifact acceleration, like Mox Ultor or Chrome Mox or whatever the case may be, but Chalice just shuts that down. Right. It becomes such a coin. It becomes, okay, this hand is great if they don't have Chalice. They're on the play. I can't keep it because they might have Chalice. <laughs> it's totally wrong. You know, it's like... Um, it's such a it's such a problem. And the and the converse is true. If you have a hand that has lots of basic lands in it, and you think I've got all the mana in the world with which to cast this shatter right. effect, but if they have lodestone right. followed by lodestone, I'm never going to get the chance. Right. It's not that workshop decks are dominant and statistically dominant. It's not that you can't beat workshop decks, but to do it, you basically have to win the die roll. That's what I'm saying. If you lose the die roll. It, and that reduces vintage to a very undesirable dynamic that becomes the caricature that people mock. And I think that's my central problem. And Chalice of the Void is the most coin flippy card of all. But And that's why I think it's a legitimate target for restriction. But I, I actually think that Lodestone is a better target. The problem with Chalice is that, well, first of all, it's also possible that if you restrict Lodestone, you can diversify the archetype more. You could bring in, you know, multicolor workshops again, which would be great for the format. It's also that, you know, Chalice just doesn't win the game by itself. Lodestone is such a dynamic threat, generating tempo and killing you in the process. And I think that makes it the most logical, even though Chalice is the card that makes the that makes the format makes the the archetype within the format feel so and appear so coin flippy. As you said, so for you, Trinisphere, Trinisphere being a two for one, it's like having played a chalice and a and a sphere. Lodestone is pretty yeah. clearly a two for one. You've played a juggernaut and a sphere. Yes. If you had to restrict one, which one would you restrict? You are correct, in my opinion. Lodestone is definitely the card that's that's doing it. The workshop archetypes in the past were far more diverse, I think far more interesting from a deck construction standpoint. The tension between what colors you play and how much colored mana you have was so much more interesting from a deck construction standpoint. And I just I just think that you don't kill the archetype by removing lodestone. Right. You just you just reset it to a point where it has more it has to do more work 
to do what it's trying to do. Oh, and there are there are different end games. Right now, there's only yes. kind of one end game with with workshop decks. Right. And that's right. And if you take out the lodestone, you open it up to having different end games. You could actually create a dynamic similar to 2005, where it creates a diversity of workshop archetypes, and workshops actually do better in a sense, in some sense. So I, I think that's why I think lodestone's the target, even though I'm so torn because chalice is the card that produces the coin flippy effect. That's the card that punishes you for being on the draw more than anything else. That's the problem card, not lodestone. But generally speaking, the coin flippiness is amplified by the presence of lodestone, right? Exactly. The simple fact is, is if you don't have the right answer at to the, their combination of threats, you're just going to die to the lodestone. If you take the lodestone out of the equation, the coin flip has less significance. Yes. You can yes. keep that hand that has three moxen in it and one land if you know that you're going to have time to manufacture an answer because they didn't yes. play lodestone and chalice. Or lodestone chalice followed by lodestone. I've been, I have been. This, I don't shift positions like this, you know, easily. I, I've been opposed to the restriction of lodestone since it's printing, but I, I think the time has come. If it's not here, it's shortly to arrive. I take it you are opposed to its restriction. I am currently opposed. I'd like to ask you one other thing, though, to reframe and to kind of tie up the whole discussion is what do you make of either unrestriction or additional or new printings to address the issue rather than restriction? I would love them to make new Absolutely. I mean, that's always the preference. You know, if they had printed, like, a, for example, my zero casting cost counterspell for artifacts, uh, that would be great. That allows you to, that gives you tools on the play to stop a chalice, to stop a golem. You mean when you're on the draw, when they're on the play? When you're on the draw, that's what I mean, when they're on the play. That's the problem. There's just too few tactics. I mean, I don't deny your point that there are tactics, but they're too limited and they're they're too easily trumped by both the counter tactics available to Workshop and the consistency that Workshop decks have. Uh, I agree completely. I would love new printings. I think that the real problem that, as you've framed it, which I agree with completely, is simply that there is no consistent way to, to counteract the deck. If you want to beat workshops on the draw, it's possible, but the deck that does that can't beat basically any other deck in the format. I mean, you'd have to build such a horrible bastardization of a deck that you wouldn't be able to beat any other decks in the format, thereby making it invalid. So while it's possible, we don't have good enough options for fighting it. You give us one or two more really options that are narrowly targeted at surviving the first turn or so efficient that they're useful enough on the first turn and later on, and then you've got yeah. yourself a fight. Yeah. Yep. So at this point, I you are correct. I'm not in favor of that restriction, but I if I had my own personal watch list, that's what it would be. I'm watching that aspect of the format highly right now. And it also has a lot to do with our love of the You Make the Card contest because it's an opportunity for us and our niche peers to to get something that would help us in this scenario. Let's recap um, for our listeners, we'd like them to tell us what they think about these cards and ask us if they want us to talk about any other card. But with just a recap, I'm very happy with the restricted list as it is right now. I don't think I would make a single change to the restricted list right now. I would probably wait until after Vintage Champs. And if I were to make any changes, I would probably just restrict Lodestone Golem and then wait another three months or the next set and then unrestrict Library. It's to me like it's the, the most unrestrictable card. What about you? What's your summary? Let's see. It is currently early April. We're only, a f- well, I mean, we need to start testing. Once Dragon's Maze comes out, we should really start testing for Vintage Champs in earnest. And I think that the format could absorb a rest- restriction right now and that it wouldn't negatively impact Vintage Champs. So I'm in favor of unrestricting library sooner rather than later. 
So you think that's probably the most unrestrictable card? In my opinion, yes. A most unrestrictable I, card. I would, I would, that would be great. That would be nice to see that. And I I'm think for that. right about now, when Dragon's Maze comes out, it'd be a good time. Plenty of time to absorb the change. Plenty of tournaments yes. between then and Vintage Champs. Yep. I think it would be a fine move. I think that you could make a case for some of the other cards later on. As you said, immediately yeah. following Vintage Champs, you could look at a Balance or a Flash or a Gift Sun Given. Any one of those I think you could make a case for after the Champs. And maybe even in light of a, a library on restriction, you could unrestrict library now and wait three to six months, six months probably, and evaluate the state of things. And you'd probably still find that you could unrestrict one of those other three. We definitely want to hear from our listeners, though, on this one. I know it's a very widely and hotly debated topic in the vintage community. Yes. Thank you for listening to episode 23 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you Many Insane Plays. It's not gay protection game! <laughs> <laughs>